When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm, I'm Lucas, and I'm Ethan. If it's your first time listening, we'd like to welcome you to the podcast. First thing you need to do, you need to subscribe, or you can listen to the entire podcast, decide for yourself how amazing it is, and then you can subscribe another time for another person. Also, if you want to catch up uh, with us, or if you have any band suggestions, uh, you can hit us up on social media. We're on Instagram. And we're on Facebook. And if you're a super fan, if you've already been subscribed for a long time, then your next step is to donate to us on Patreon. You get early episodes um, and you get access to our new segment uh, in the after hours where we talk about the six worst songs of that band that week. We've been having a lot of fun with that. And finally, something new that we'd like to start pushing. We have officially reached the 70,000 listen mark and with so many people listening we have a lot of reviews on iTunes and if you want to help out you can go to our iTunes reviews and leave us a review but Lucas we just got in a new review this week would you like to uh, read it to everyone yeah so um, you know we we love to uh, highlight our fans that have taken the time to highlight us and say thank you. But what I really like about this one is that um, this review left by uh, Lauren Robotos, hello, Lauren, uh, really captures the intended nature of this podcast. What my, what my goal was when I set out with episode one, and that is to introduce people to new music that they, either had never heard before or were unfamiliar with and hopefully introduce them to some new favorites. And so um, she wrote to us, uh, to the guys, thank you so much for gifting us listeners with such great content. I'm in my mid-20s and my dad has always tried getting me to listen to classic rock. It wasn't until recently my friend pushed me to listen to Pink Floyd's The Wall that my curiosity was sparked to know more music. You know, that's a great album to get you into uh, listening to good music. That was sure uh, definitely a, a pivotal record for me. Uh, I stumbled upon this podcast accidentally and now listen to two to three episodes wow. a day. Wow. While I'm not much. Yeah. 
While I'm not much of a metal fan, they cover so many genres and have given me a greater appreciation for the 70s and 80s. I now have something to share with my dad and I'm teaching him the history of some bands from his era. Bands and songwriters I would love to see here are Little River Band, Huey Lewis in the News, Dan Fulberg, Pablo Cruz, and Orleans. I can't thank you enough for continuing to bring us podcasts and look forward to hearing more. Uh, thank you so much, Lauren, for leaving that. We will definitely continue to uh, bring you guys more, and I really love your suggestion for That's Huey exactly Lewis what I was going to say. <laughs> I was like, I would love that, to Huey Lewis in the news. That, that's one that I have been thinking about because I would definitely – it would not be hard for me to put together a set for that. So, um, but yeah, that's just – you know, that's the – that's the whole point of the podcast to get people to kind of reach out from what they normally listen to and to delve into new uh, musical grounds and to either learn about new bands or learn new things about bands that they already are familiar with. So it just makes me happy to see um, responses like that. So uh, yeah, continue to uh, let us know what you think of the podcast as well as um, what bands you would like for us to do. This episode is actually um, directly in response to uh, fan suggestions. Originally, this actually was going to premiere last month, but when uh, Eddie Van Halen passed away, our schedule got shifted and this episode that originally was going to come out in October had to be delayed for a couple weeks, but um, this episode is completely because of you. I mean, I would have gotten to it eventually, but the reason I'm doing it now is because you guys asked for it. We listened to you. But before we get into that, we listened. That's right. But before we get into that, there was some big uh, rock news that actually happened a couple weeks ago, and uh, I kept forgetting to talk about it, but it's something that um, I really wanted to at least touch on for a few minutes because uh, whenever we did our initial episode on this band, I actually talked about this. And um, it's now very interesting to see what a difference a year has made. So um, ACDC is back together. Not that they ever broke up, but they pretty much had broken up. What's the story behind that? Because, so the last tour that they were on, so they they made an album a couple years ago called Rocker Bust. And the tour for that album was about as big of a disaster as you probably could imagine as far as what 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 it did to the lineup. So the lineup at the beginning of the tour was, of course, you've got Angus Young on lead guitar, which, you know, I said in that episode and will continue to say that as long as Angus wants ACDC to continue, it'll continue. He is the man that the band lives and dies by. There is no ACDC without Angus. Um, You had Brian Johnson on vocals, who's been there since Back in Black. You had um, 
uh, Phil Rudd, who has been with them since pretty much their first record. Uh, Cliff Williams on bass, who has been with them since Highway to Hell. And then Stevie Young, who uh, is Angus's nephew that filled in for um, the late Malcolm Young, who was the founding rhythm guitar player and Angus's brother, who passed away in 2016, I believe. So that was the lineup at the start of the tour. And before the tour officially started, uh, Phil Rudd got arrested for possession of meth and marijuana, as well as trying to attempt a murder for hire. What? What? <laughs> well, was it dirt cheap? Ooh, <laughs> yeah, those were those were all the headlines when that happened. Oh, the irony! Oh my god! So, so that happened right before the tour started. And so they scrambled to get a new drummer and they got Chris Slade, who was their official drummer in the late 80s and early 90s. He's the one that uh, plays on Thunderstruck. Mm-hmm. And then about halfway through the tour, uh, Brian Johnson, the singer, is forced to get off the road because his doctors told him that if he does even one more show he will have permanent hearing loss yeah that's when Axel and Rose so just in. And, and so axel rose came in and filled in for vocals which i mean i guess that's pretty cool but at the same time like you know doesn't really feel much like acdc yeah, at that yeah, point. pretty much as gnr at that point yeah, and then uh, Cliff Williams announced that once the tour is over, he's retiring. Hmm. And so, as far as classic era members go, Angus is the last man standing. <laughs> and so, I talk about in our first ACDC episode that it's like, you know, what's going to happen to them? I mean, Angus is the only one left. He hasn't said that ACDC is done, but you know, he's the he's the only guy left. What is he what is he gonna do? Is he gonna get the guys back together? Is he gonna build a new band? You know, it was a really weird situation that they left that tour in. I mean, it was almost just like uh it's like a slasher movie, just one by one they kept getting picked off. Yeah. So then this official this official thing, what is that? Like so they're officially not broken up so uh so out of the blue they announce a new album called power up which is such an acdc yeah. title and uh brian johnson phil rudd and cliff williams are back all of wow. a sudden that's good uh, they said that they patched things up with phil that they made sure that he got better um Brian Johnson said that they developed new technology for his ears to prevent his hearing from going away. And Cliff Williams said that he just got bored and decided to go back on the road. Wow. What a, what a great set of unlikely circumstances. There needs to be, that sounds like, um, like a comedy movie, like ending where it's like, yeah, well, well, what it is, is it's final. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah. You're so right. I was just like, this whole thing sounds like, <laughs> like the time from the album recording to now needs to be like a two-part movie. Well, you you know that Sex Farm is really big in Japan. They want to do a tour there. You want to come? <laughs> yeah. So it's just like all was out of the blue, and there had been some some quiet rumors that. Um, that they were coming back, but of course nothing official. And then just, yeah, the album comes out. They're back on. I mean, they would probably announce a tour if uh, the quarantine still yeah. wasn't affecting everybody. Stadium tours. Yeah. When's the album but releasing? The new album comes out November 13th. That's just not, that's not too far. No, it'll be, well, That's both. probably about the time that this episode's going to come out. Hey, I can even. Uh, it'll be uh, later this week. Wow! I some, sometimes it's weird because we don't record around the time when the actual episode comes out, so I've got to like think future like. Yeah. So, uh, for those of you that are listening, it'll come out this week, Friday, November thirteenth. So. We will, uh, we'll definitely publish the album releases so rock and roll. Oh, yeah, and I think that we'll probably have, um, an ACDC volume two episode coming out pretty soon because of this. So keep your ears out. Interesting. Well, today we may we're not talking about ACDC for the entire episode. Uh, no, some, we're not. Some of our listeners may want to listen to more about ACDC. We do have an ACDC episode, but that's not today. You guys have clicked on this episode because you know exactly who it's about, and you're here to listen to someone who has been requested by many listeners since about April or May. And oh, before then, back when Justin was with me, we oh, were really? getting re- requests for for this one. And this is a um, artist who we've referenced many times, including in our uh, Van Halen Volume Two, talking about his guitar prowess and as well as his influence over the world of rock and roll, especially as it pertains to the guitar and soloing and all of that. And today we are talking about none other than Jimi Hendrix. Yes, the. Uh... The quote-unquote greatest guitar player of all time. I've been interested in the in this episode specifically from um, the Van Halen part two, where we were debating, like we had like a probably ten to fifteen minute conversation about who was number one, who was number two, and why. Right, mm-hmm. and I've been really excited just to hear more about Jimi Hendrix because I think Jimi Hendrix is like just a household name. You know, like, uh, like he's like the, he's like, he, he represents like guitar for like a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that past, like, I mean, I don't think that people know a ton about him. Yeah. He's almost become like this mythical figure. Yeah. It's like, oh, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, I mean, you know, a big part of that being because he did die so young. 
He is, I would say, probably the most famous member of the 27 Club. Oh, he's part of that? Wow. Yep. Uh-huh. That is... Uh, okay. For those uh, for those people listening that don't know what the 27 Club is, um, it is a list of, of musicians that have died at the age of 27 and that being usually because of drug related death so uh the big the big three of that and the reason why the 27 club started to become a thing was in a period of about a year jimmy hendrix janice joplin and jim morrison all died at 27 due to some kind of drug-related incident. So that was a pretty uh, dark time for, for music. Right. So let's, let's talk about context and talk about Jimi Hendrix's kind of early musical career, and we can kind of get into things, because he is that kind of mythical, legendary figure that, that people have heard his music many times, I'm sure, but don't know much about him himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He, um, one of, one of the most fascinating parts of getting ready for this episode was kind of figuring out who Jimi Hendrix, the, the person was because everyone, uh, has these, uh, these images and these, these constructions of who Hendrix was. And obviously we have his music, mm -hmm. but he kind of has transcended to almost like, you know, he's, he's almost like a character rather than a, yeah. someone that actually like was a person that, you know, lived here on this planet. He, he had such an otherworldly kind of like how we talked with uh, David Bowie he almost didn't feel like he was of this world a lot of the time. And, um, you know, finding out about him as a person was a very interesting process. So, um, his, his birth name is actually Johnny, not Jimmy, mm. which was very interesting, but he, um, he got changed to James when he was like three years old by his father hmm. uh, to James Marshall Hendricks. And then he uh, changed it to uh, Jimmy whenever he was starting to uh, develop his musical career because he never went by Jimmy. He went by Buster when he was a kid. Hmm. <laughs> Funny. So, like, none none of his family calls him Jimmy. When you listen to interviews and when they talk about him in interviews and stuff, that uh, they always call him Buster or um, James. Hmm. So Jimi Hendrix really is kind of like, in a weird way, like not necessarily him. It's more; it's the musical representation of james hendrix yeah it's a uh, it's almost like a like a freddie mercury or a reginald dwight uh becoming eldon john <laughs> mm -hmm. so, you know it's just it's it's the it's the stage name he picked 
and, and also specifically picking the J-I-M-I spelling of Jimmy. Uh, a that, very that, intentional that's the move by him. Of Hendrix, right? He didn't just... Yes, it is. Okay. Yeah, he uh, but he did pick the uh, the JIMI because he he felt that it looked more exotic and that it would make him look more mysterious. Yeah, which which worked. It did. So so go ahead. Whenever uh, whenever I did this research and also learned about Eddie Van Halen, I found that there were some very interesting similarities. The the biggest being that. Um, that they carried their guitars around with them everywhere in the way that, you know, Eddie Van Halen famously would take his riffs even to the bathroom and that he just would, would have it with him at all times. Jimmy was the same way. And I think that that is a common denominator in musicians that are either really good or really bad. Because you have those, you have those people that take their instrument everywhere, but they don't actually play it. You know, the the people that walk around the college campus and they have the guitar with them just to look cool and get the chicks. Mm-hmm. And then you have the the people that are carrying it around because they're playing it all the time. I thought that that was an interesting parallel that um, Jimmy just would always carry his guitar around him with him everywhere he even took it to the army when he enlisted and slept with it cradled in his arms every night (laughs) this is my there are many like it but this one is mine Uh (laughs) uh-huh and the interesting thing about so one of the most famous things about Jimi hendrix as a guitar player is the fact that he's left-handed yes and he was really kind of the i mean I won't say that he was really the first, but because Paul McCartney had been, was around before Hendrix made his big debut, because his first album came out in '67, so the Beatles were still very much uh, going at that time. Right. But he, uh, he's more iconically left-handed. Yeah, I would say, you know, him and Kurt Cobain are kind of like the two big left-handed guitar players that everyone thinks of. I didn't think of Kurt Cobain. Oh yeah, he's uh he's pretty wildly known as a left-handed guitar player. Okay. But definitely Jimi Hendrix is is the most iconic lefty player. But he actually was not uh really a lefty player. He was an ambidextrous player. He would he can flip the guitar at will. That's so stupid. In the middle of a song and continue to play it as if nothing happened. Uh, Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones said it used to piss him off. <laughs> wow. That's because like, it was just... It's like Michelangelo Badio would do that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And the reason he was able to do it was because he would get in trouble growing up by his dad because his dad was of the belief that if you're left-handed, then you're of the devil. Wow. That you're cursed, you know, because that was that was kind of a common belief back in the day. Wow. Uh, I, I, what, what time frame it? are we talking about? Was it? <laughs> I mean, it was it was definitely on its way out, but you know, certain Christian uh, and superstitious 
things believe that there was, you know, that there was bad luck and, and, you know, all that stuff in common with being left-handed. Where did he grow up? And he grew up in Seattle. Huh. Which is another uh, commonality that he has with uh, Kurt Cobain, apart from being left-handed. Which I actually was found that very surprising that he was from Seattle. I, mm-hmm. I did not know that. People Would not really think of Seattle whenever they think of like music. Oh, they absolutely do, but it's because it's they mostly think of grunge because that's right. where all the grunge bands came from. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden all came from the Seattle area. Huh. That's kind of that's their musical claim to fame is the is the '90s grunge movement. Mm-hmm. Well, that explains why I don't know about it. <laughs> you should go check out our I, Nirvana yeah. episode. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, well, his whenever his he would be practicing lefty because that's that's really what he was. He was born left-handed, and his father made him do everything right-handed. And so he just got he got to the point where he could do most things both handed because he had to. Mm. And whenever his um, whenever his dad would come in the door, he would just quickly switch to right handed. So that way, his dad didn't know the difference. <laughs> and so that's how he was able to learn to be able to play both right and left handed rather than just left. It it is very interesting considering that there's a lot of really complicated fingering patterns for a lot of his songs, especially the uh, iconic Hendrix chord. Playing that left-handed mm-hmm. is probably a, a big pain. And that raises the question, how did he, because he did flip his guitar over, how did he string it? Did he string it like a right-handed guitar? Or did he just play it? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, like it was, it was, it would be stringed as if it was a left-handed guitar, but it was, but he didn't actually have pure left-handed guitars. It was a right-handed guitar turned upside down and restringed. Oh, okay. So, because if you look at all his pictures, all of his headstocks are upside down. Whoa. Well, but reverse headstocks were a thing, weren't they? I don't think at that time they were. And definitely not his earlier guitars. Maybe later in his career, he might have. But definitely early on, the, he's got. He probably is he the one of... that that popularized reverse headstocks because people that were actually right-handed wanted to look like Jimi Hendrix. That's a very lot. That's probably the most logical reason. Well, my that. my question is then that how. How do you get a right-handed guitar with a reverse headstock if they didn't exist yet? Well, what it would be is just, uh, you know, he would he would have the right-handed guitar. Right. It would, and it would, when it flipped over, it would just be upside down. Mm-hmm. And so, he, and he would he would do some finagling to like you know get to where the strings will fit both ways and. He was he was also kind of like Eddie Van Halen, where he did some experimenting mm-hmm. on his guitars to get them the way that he wanted mm-hmm. 
Um, but yeah, and going to what you were saying about the Hendrix chord, one thing I also learned about him and what made him such a great guitar player was that he had abnormally long fingers, oh, yes. even longer even longer than what would be considered good for a guitar player. Mm-hmm. And it's how he was able to do all this crazy stuff that no one had ever seen before is because he just he had the right genes to be able to to pull off all this crazy stuff. That'll do it. Yeah, there there are some pictures of like I talk about this all the time of like Steve Vai stretching his his index finger and his pinky finger from like the third to the twelfth fret. And it's like that kind of stretch is the kind of stuff that 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 can help you go from being like you know your normal everyday guitar player into a, a legend like yeah. Steve Vai or Jimi Hendrix. Mm-hmm. There's certain things that about being a you know an instrumentalist that it's like yeah you can practice a lot and you can get really really good, but there are certain things you physically won't be able to do unless you were born with the with the ability to do don't it let that, physiologically don't let that discourage you anyone listening no <laughs> but you know it's it certainly helps yes you're not gonna there's certain things you you physically will not be able to play if you don't have the uh if you don't have the anatomy for it yes so what inspired and, uh what inspired Jimi hendrix to even take up guitar in the first place so he had a very, very rough childhood. I mean, listening to his story, it's it's one of the saddest childhoods I've probably ever heard in my life. What happened? Um, constantly, his parents getting together and breaking up, and so there was there was all this turmoil in their house. Lots of fighting, lots of alcohol abuse. Um. He was always destitute poor growing up, and so they were always living in government housing or with friends or, like, sometimes he couldn't even live with his parents. He had to, like, go figure out a way to live on his own. Jimi Hendrix was the oldest of his siblings, and he had six brothers and sisters, and four of them had to be given away as wards of the state because they were born with severe physical deformities because uh, his mom drank so heavily when she was pregnant. Wow. And um, just his father was pretty abusive. And then finally, when he was like 13 or 14, his mom died. And so it was just a it was just a rough upbringing, and guitar was kind of like his place where he had control of his uncontrollable life. There were so many things about his life that he just had no control over, and so whenever he got alone and had his guitar, that was kind of like his safe space, mm. where where he could you know, go to his own world and, you know, just be there. And of course, you know, just like most kids of his time, you know, he was, 
he was a kid when that first wave of rock and roll hit. You know, when Elvis and Little Richard and Chuck Berry, all of them came around, he was, you know, 10, 11 years old. And so, you know, he he really got swept up in that. And he just he just had this determination and he just had this love of the guitar. So why did he go to the and army? He was just like a... He went to the army because he um, got in trouble with the law, and it was either go to prison or go to the army. Mm. And so he picked the army. Yeah. And um, he actually didn't even serve his full time at the army. He faked being gay mm. so he could be um, discharged. Mm. <laughs> outstanding move yeah, Th- yeah. Oh, was this was this vietnam era no this is um about 10 years oh, before so this vietnam must be korea then or is just yeah i think it was no it was it was, it was in between there wasn't okay. it was just kind of i don't think there was any combat okay. at that time any live combat it was just more of you know it was probably mostly like getting ready in case anything happened with the Cold mm-hmm. War. So he never like got st- got deployed anywhere or anything like that. He wanted to be a, a parachute trooper, mm-hmm. but you know, then he decided what he did was he. That's when he started to form some bands with some fellow army mm-hmm. mates. <laughs> And was just like, um, I'd rather do. Were this those his than... first bands? As far as we know, no, he did. No, he had some bands when he was in high school that he was in. None, none that we have any surviving recordings of or anything like that. But, um, you know, as as early as fifteen years old, he was in bands doing, you know, the dance circuit going around high schools playing at school dances and playing at different venues that would allow underage kids to play mm-hmm. and then yeah he he formed uh he formed some relationships in uh the army as well and so whenever he decided that he'd rather do music than the army he got out and that's when he fully dedicated his life to trying to make it as a musician but it took him a very long time Hmm. Um, he he started that process when he was about 19 and didn't get anywhere until he was about 25 Hmm. what did that look like from 19 to 25 he uh, actually became a very prolific um session player and this was one of the most surprising things that i learned about him he played on a ton of nothing that if i were to say you would recognize but he played with a lot of big names in the early 60s Uh, like he actually got to play for little richard for a little while as richard little richard's guitar player he also played with the isley brothers which he didn't play on this song, but the Isley Brothers are the ones that do the "You make me wanna shout, throw yeah. my hands." And the Ethan will will remember from all of our school dances. Yeah. Uh, he played with them for a while, but he always got kicked out of every band that he was in because he would um, 
always break out into these wild, crazy guitar solos. And that was not a an in vogue thing at that time. They were looking for guitar players that will dress sharp, that will stay back because they are not the star of the show. <laughs> Little Richard would get furious at Jimmy for trying to upstage him. He would tell him, nobody is allowed to get the applause except me. They did not come here to see you. They came here to see me. My, how times have changed. Yes. This is is before the uh, guitar-centered, really the only time that the guitar was the spotlight is if the front man was playing as well. You know, Chuck Berry was kind of the exception to the rule of, you know, the guitar being focused along with the vocals. For the most part, it's whoever's singing, that's all you care about. You don't typically know the other members of the band. So Jimi Hendrix was kind of the first guitar hero. Absolutely he was. And he um, was a true renegade. He could never stick with anyone because he just – he had this desire to just do what he wanted to do. And he was always torn between having to do all of these gigs just to pay the rent while also at the same time having his own musical ambitions. And he also learned just his craft during this time. There are stories of him in the early 60s challenging the the blues masters of that time to guitar duels and he would lose to them because even when he would have the technical ability he hadn't developed his soul and his expression yet the uh the subtle touches on the guitar to make him sing rather than just pure skill Mm -hmm. and so every place that he bought even though he would get kicked out of the band he would always pick up something from it he would learn a new lesson. He would learn a new thing about the guitar until finally around 65, 66, he was ready to really put himself at the front of the scene. But he did not accomplish that while he was in America. He actually had to go to Britain to do it. Hmm. That's where he had his first break and it's where he recorded his first album. Who discovered him? Um, um, uh, do you guys know about the band called The Animals? So actually, whenever we did our first Beatles episode, their song, House of the Rising Sun, was our bonus song for that episode. Um, their bass player, Eric Burden, is the one that found Jimi Hendrix playing in the New York club and was blown away by him. But as good at that point as Jimmy was, the audience almost like wasn't still wasn't quite ready for him yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the big thing still at the time was the Beatles and the Stones, who were not known for that kind of. Was play. he was he like playing like the blues style at that time too? Yes, because that was pretty much just what you did. Hmm. Um. And, you know, the, the, the blues masters at that time were now coming out of England with uh, really, if you were to ask in 66 who the biggest guitar player in the world was, it would have been Eric Clapton. Hmm. And 
there because the expression at that time was Eric Clapton is God. <laughs> he was considered the greatest guitar player in the world. But Eric Burden saw Jimi Hendrix and was just like, oh my gosh, we need to get this guy. And uh, he's himself is British. And so he was just like, hey, you know, no one in America is paying attention to you. If I bring you over to England, you'll be the biggest thing. And Jimmy was desperate at this point. It was kind of like he was kind of at his last point where it was just like, if I don't make it soon, I've got to figure out something else to do because this is taking too long. And so he's just like, sure, let's go. So he goes over to England. His first show, uh, he, he told him that he had one uh, non-negotiable request, and that's that he could meet Eric Clapton when he got to England. <laughs> and Eric was like, sure, whatever. <laughs> so he has a star-studded first performance. And just let me tell you who all is here. Um... Eric Clapton, uh, Jack Bruce, who is the bass player for Cream, Paul McCartney, Ooh. Ringo, Ringo mm -hmm. Starr, Pete Townsend, Ooh. and Keith Moon of The Who, <laughs> um, Mick Jagger, Brian Jones of The Rolling Stones. Um, oh, who else was there? Um Um, there's just just everyone that they the joke was is that if you'd have dropped a, a bomb on that venue that the entire British pop scene would have disappeared in one night. <laughs> Where was this, and how did this get set up? It was, uh, it was it was Eric Burden. He just he believed in Hendrix so much that he just told everyone because he you know the Animals were a pretty big band at that time, so he knew all these guys. And it was just like you've got to come see this guy. Mm -hmm. And they all said that when they came and saw him, that they were just jaws were dropped. That they couldn't even believe what he was doing. <laughs> the the famous the famous saying is um, when Eric Clapton is going to the restroom and Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones comes out and he says, "Be careful, mate. There's a lot of water around the toilet," and. Eric said, oh, did a pipe leak? And he said, no, those are the tears of all the guitar players. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so in that sense, and this kind of ties back to our debate on Jimmy and Eddie, of the fact that there's really only two guitar players that affected even the top echelon of the guitar players and that's like top he's uh, that's somewhat like even transcending just guitar players like he had like the pop star elite like like mm -hmm. their jaws on the floor you know oh yeah jeff jeff beck was there too who's also considered one of the greatest of all time that's the name that i was trying to think of i couldn't remember um i mean just yeah he he blew away the best of the best and showed that he was already miles ahead of them and that he had birthed something completely new. And so the really Eddie is Eddie Van Halen's the only one that's ever done anything relatively close to that, to where even the best of the best is like, um, is shocked 
that uh, by what the what the, what this guy is doing at this point. No other guitar player is ever going to be able to do that because nothing's surprising anymore. Not in that way. Did did Jimmy have a band or was it just him? So like what did this performance he, look like? So he was able to put together what would become the Jimi Hendrix experience right before this show. And so that's Noel Redding, who's his bass player, and Mitch Mitchell, who's his drummer. It's just a three piece. One of the one of the best power trios of all mm-hmm. time. And the all the other two are legends in of their own right, mainly because of the legendary work that they did with Jimmy. And so it was just a three-piece band, but they were pretty new. And um, Jimmy actually picked them more because of their looks rather than their playing. He picked guys that had big afros like him, but they were two white guys. Mm-hmm. Two British white guys and Jimmy, uh, American, just going at it. But just the chemistry worked. And as as soon as – I mean – it was just within a couple days of arriving in England, he was now considered the next big thing. And so immediately they get him in to uh, record his first record. And that ends up becoming uh, Are You Experienced? Now, we um, we hear some keyboards on some of the songs here. Mm-hmm. And they sound like they're live. So, yes, they are. Is that a fourth person? No. So he, Jimmy would regularly have co- collaborators just randomly okay. coming in. But that that was a fourth individual on stage. Yes, but it but it was never a member of the okay. band. It was always just like a guest spot or a session musician. Okay. It would a lot of times it would be he would borrow just whoever else happened to be in the studio another band working on their album he would be like hey we need someone on keyboard you want to come over and play (laughs) we'll get we'll get into specifically that when we get to one of the songs because there's a very famous keyboard player on one of the songs on uh on this list well so just like that he became uh and, and was that first record like his big breakout record like it just blew up oh yeah Oh yeah, it's considered one of the greatest debut albums, not just in rock, but period. It was a it was a game changing, and it came out. The only reason it didn't go to number one was because Sgt. Pepper came out the week after. <laughs> so it went to number two. Which, of course, yeah, because uh, so, I mean, you no one's going to beat the Beatles at their own game, but you know, his. There's there's three records that really came out right at the same time. Um, Hendrix, then Sgt. Pepper, and then Pink Floyd's first record. That, like, in 67, that just completely um, revolutionized all of popular music. It's the, It was when the hippie culture fully went into swaying, uh, no pun intended. And... Really, this is the birth of classic rock right here. You And we actually talked about this in our Doors episode. The Doors is about a month before this. 
and that first record. And that's really the point when you listen to classic rock radio, you only maybe hear one or two songs before that period. Like you may hear the Stones' Satisfaction or, um, you know, some of the Beatles' early stuff. But, you know, 67 and specifically that period of The Doors, the first Hendrix record, and um, Pink Floyd's Piper at the Gates of Dawn. That's like the point where you can kind of point and say, this is when the classic rock era begins. And classic rock guitar, absolutely the genesis, the starting point is, are you experienced? Hmm. Because nobody was playing like that before that record came out. And then on his, uh, like the big launch show of the, of the record, he does another uh, performance where it's a big star studded um, yep. listing. And he plays Sergeant Pepper on stage in front of the <laughs> Beatles. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Which was a, like a couple days after it came out. No, at no at the time that that was an incredibly risky move. The Beatles were kind of at that high untouchable level. If he hadn't have completely destroyed the song, which he did, that could have been the biggest slap in the face to the Beatles. What do you mean? And because at that point that could have been termed as disrespectful because it was actually the concert was being uh, put together by the Beatles manager. And so if he, especially playing a song that had just come out, it was it was considered a very risky move, but he absolutely pulled it off. Hmm. It was just the climate was different back then. Yeah. It's it's not like today where like, you know, people instantly collaborate with each other. Yeah. Right. It was, you know, the Beatles. The Beatles were kind of like, you know, they're almost kind of scary in a way because they were just they were so big, right? Yeah. And you know, their opinion meant your success or your failure, right? And so, how you know, old was Jimmy whenever he got this break? Like whenever he was playing the show, he I want to say he was twenty five. Wow. 24 at the youngest so he he's only got a few years left at this point yeah he's got a he has a very short career three years that's it so this so his his breakout after album show he plays the Beatles and mm -hmm. how does the show go show goes incredibly well he brings the house down and so now, at this point, it's safe to say that he's conquered Europe. And so now, the big test is we got to go back to America mm-hmm. and see now that we've got all this momentum, let's see if we can try and finally get big there. Because that's always, doesn't matter what part of the world you're in at, at that time, you're not considered a big success until you are big in America because it's the biggest yeah. market. 
So, and especially for him being an American, he he's he really wants to yeah. be successful in where he's from. So, um, the way that he breaks in America is at the Monterey Pop Festival, which has become iconic in of its own right, because this is where Hendrix debuts to America. Um, first off, his songs, as well as his iconic stage performance. So you, all of the famous guitar tricks that people use come from Jimi Hendrix, like playing behind your head, playing with your teeth, um, like doing all of these tricks with the guitar. Mm-hmm. That was That was Jimi's thing. And then he sealed the deal at the end of the show by lighting his guitar on fire. He didn't do the swing the guitar around your neck, did he? Um, I, I don't think so. Okay. But like the the two big ones being playing behind your head and playing with right. your teeth, which are iconic guitar moves. That's like anyone that has no idea how guitars play when they do air guitar that's like always one of the two moves that they do (laughs) Mm -hmm. so um, so when he played the Monterey Festival and did those tricks specifically it was the lighting the guitar on fire that was that's it's such an iconic image if you see the image you'll be like oh yeah I know that (laughs) Where he's 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 kneeling over the guitar and it almost looks like it's witchcraft, like he's he's um, waving his fingers over the flames and and pouring lighter fluid on it and and after that he becomes the biggest star in America. Well, if only it was that easy. And yeah, really. well, and it, it also yeah. helped that at that point now the yeah. culture was ready for it too. Because the Beatles had fully made the shift from pure pop to psychedelic pop. And, um, you know, just the the environment was ready. The hippie movement was fully underway at that point. And so Hendrix finally didn't um, feel like he was an outsider. He was the leader of a new movement. Because he was already a hippie before being hippie was cool. And so he just he didn't have to adapt to that. That's just who he was already. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, he be- he becomes the hippie icon, right? You could say almost in a way, as far as entertainment goes, he's all om- he could be the icon of the '60s. Yeah, because of just I mean the images of him. And just the way that he dressed, the way that he looked, um, and then the music in of itself. And just, again, the fact that he's become this mythical figure now, um, he's he's become so iconic. I would say, yes, the Beatles were a bigger band, but it's as far as like an image of a, of a person, I don't think anyone was bigger than Jimmy. Now, I have heard the assertion that even Jimi Hendrix at his height um, of his career was still so poor that he was living on the streets. 
No, he was not okay. living on the streets. But he did not have – he had a lot of money. He just never kept a lot of money. As soon as he would get money, he would spend mm. it. He, he had an attitude of live like it's your last day, and so he would never save anything. And so if there would there would be times where he would need money and he would be in a pinch, but uh, he always had places to live. But he also would never really settle down in one spot. He was always moving. He was a restless, wandering spirit. So the live like it's your last day would then translate to lots of hard drugs and combined with it being the late 60s we don't quite know how detrimental they can be and yes he was a he was a big fan yeah. of acid yeah he even uh he even had a strain of acid named after his song purple yeah Haze. that would make sense and um yeah he was at the forefront of the psychedelic movement in every aspect and so uh, later in 67 his second album comes out Axis Bold Mm -hmm. as Love and then um, 68 is the big double album (laughs) and then that's it wow only three albums in his lifetime technically four if you want to include a live album that was all unreleased material Hmm. Uh, his band of gypsies but as far as studio albums while he's still alive just three but that's not for a want of music because around 80 posthumous albums have been released since his death wow 80 of all of these yeah now a large majority of those are all containing the same songs. But he had a massive vault of unreleased music. Massive. Hmm. Pretty pretty similar to the way that Prince did. So he just wrote all the time. Like, that's just what he did. Yes. And he just always was recording. He... Is someone that actually grew to really hate touring. And so he would uh, instead try and go to the studio as much as he could. Hmm. So, um, you know, the as it does, and, you know, we, we talk about this um, in a lot of our episodes now about the the sudden fame and what that does for people's psyches. We talked about it a lot in our David Bowie episode last week. Um, Obviously that was an issue for Hendrix as well. And it's what led him to harder and harder drugs and faster and faster lifestyle. And eventually in 1970, he did Mm -hmm. pass away. And what it was, was he was with his girlfriend and he took a handful of her sleeping pills, but he thought that they were just like normal over-the-counter sleeping pills, but they were like the mega ultra-strength ones. And he took like 10 of them at once 
on top of having quite a bit to drink Ooh. before then. And that combination yeah. just that would took him out. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Oh man. So I guess what led do we know like where his mind was like in those like very short two years, like once he makes his big break? Like do we get any hints of like like Bowie was like, Oh, I really wanted this and now it turns out that I hate the spotlight. Like was Hendrix in a similar light where yeah, he, was he like he felt he he felt the same way. He hated the fact that um that his guitar tricks made him a big star because he felt obligated that he had to do them every show. And he hated doing it after a little while. Like he was just like, Ugh, they're going to be the, the crowd's going to be upset if I don't play behind my head. And if I don't light my guitar on fire and if I don't play with my teeth. And so he felt chained that he had to yeah. do it. He was actually a very hit and miss live player. Sometimes he was incredible. Other times he was terrible. But you think it was just because, because he was just of like, his eh. like Yeah. Also being high all the time didn't Well and help. also his style. His the, the a lot of the songs that we're gonna listen to on our um on our six songs list sound like they're kinda just thrown together, not in in a in a negative way, but it sounds like three guys getting together and kind of like how we talked with our Iron Maiden episode. Everybody knows sort of the structure of the song for, for those, but for these songs, it's not as much that it's more like we have an idea of some riffs. Let's just all see what happens and play whatever we want. It, it kind of has that feeling of just, I don't. Yeah. I don't know how to describe it, but Lucas, you remember when has a has yeah, a has yeah, a loose. It's like a studio it. jam band. You remember when we were in uh, when we were in After Dawn, and and sometimes we'd go over to like Eric's house or something, and then one of us would say like, you know, hey, check out this riff, and then we'd all jam on it for a little bit and come up with what we came up with. That's what these songs sound like, mm-hmm. and so I'm not surprised that he'd be hit or miss because when you do stuff like that, it can either sound amazing and wonderful and everything just gels perfectly, or you try to do what you did last night and it just doesn't feel right. Probably why I had so many songs mm-hmm. in the vault. Right. Because he'd be like, hey, I got this idea. Yeah. Hey, I got this idea. And, and yep. everybody just jams on it and hit or miss. Mm-hmm. I heard Ed Sheeran talk about Which that. Explain... He talked about songwriting and he said that he forced himself to write a song every day. And he's like, even if it's terrible. Like you just write it because eventually you'll write something really good and then you'll use it. Yep. Uh, I've heard Chris Martin say a similar thing. So yeah, he was just uh, he was someone that um, never got over a lot of his childhood trauma. Any time that he would come home he would almost revert back to being a little kid again and um, was still deathly afraid of his father. Mm. And he just, he definitely used the drugs to, to numb a lot of that pain from his past. Hmm. 
And he even got to the point right before he died where he was telling people that he wanted to quit music altogether. Because Jimmy was also in a very interesting era for music where the first, a lot of the first real superstars were being born at this time. And when I say born, I mean like coming into their own as musicians. Uh, I mean, yes, Elvis was big, and you could say that he was the first one, and Little Richard was big as well, and some of those guys, but not near to the level that the, right. that the Beatles and the Stones and all, all of them started to get to. Um, Elvis wasn't as big in the 50s as Jimmy was at the end of the 60s. Mm. And because of that, and also because of the fact that he could never keep money around he had to always say yes to everything and they ran him ragged they milked him for every single thing that he was worth every tour that they could get him on every festival that they could get him on you know it was just i i was reading through his that part of his life and it was just non-stop he never had a break ever and he just got driven to the end of himself. Mm. There was no rest. Now, part of it was also, you know, the times that he could have rested, he didn't. He would go out and party or go into the studio. Well, maybe that was but... rest for him. No, it wasn't because he was complaining all the time of how exhausted he well, was. Well, but but we all have that thing that we want to go do when we have free time. And it sounds to me like that to him was recording songs and writing songs. I think that Well, no, cuz he was cuz he was saying that he wanted to quit music altogether it not sounds just touring. To me, he he didn't he didn't even want to be a it musician. Sounds to anymore. me like his escape was the guitar. And now the guitar is now like the thing that he's trying to escape from. That's cool. And then and mm-hmm. so, and I think so that's exactly what's like, ha- what I, was happening. I used to turn to the guitar whenever I needed a break from from the stress of life. And now the guitar in my career is the stress of my life. This is like a bad episode to of Drought mm-hmm. or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then he turned mm-hmm. to drugs yeah. to escape don't do drugs kids do guitar (laughs) yeah (laughs) well so uh, his career kind of ends kind of i mean it's a great career but like almost anticlimactically like he doesn't really get a final hurrah or anything well, no, he really doesn't. I mean, the fact that you, he you died in... argue his last hurrah was Electric Ladyland, and I think that that... But that comes a whole two but years that, before well, you could death. I said you could argue that. I didn't say I thought that. But as far as his musical career yeah. goes, that was his final album, and I think that that was pretty good. It's definitely yes. the pinnacle. It's what his whole to, career works towards. To his very short career, like that. But yeah. But it. But you know, yeah. Again, the fact that it comes out in '68 and he doesn't pass away till '70. Mm-hmm. You know, 
he's recording nonstop throughout all this time, but nothing is coming out except for right. that live record, uh, Band of Gypsies, which mm-hmm. is pretty good. Um, in fact, uh, one of the songs on there makes it to number two on my ranked playlist. But, you know, it's it, it'll, for a lot of people, it still doesn't really count as a true Hendrix mm. record. And so, um, yeah, yeah, it was, he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't have that last final hour Mm. record. He doesn't have the one that he, that he makes right before, you know, he dies or, yeah, or before he retires. It's just kind of, it almost, it almost, yeah, it almost comes out as a, his his career ends on a whimper in a way because he didn't have anything to show for it. Yeah. Well, with that depressing note, I think we should go ahead and move on to our next segment, which is our six song segment. Yes. So uh, stay tuned. We will be right back to talk about the songs that we picked for this episode. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about Jimi Hendrix and his life and his career and the wonderful music and guitar prowess that he had. And now it's time to talk specifically about that with our six-song segment. So for those of you who are new, welcome. We hope you enjoy this episode. And Lucas, could you explain to them what do we mean by this segment? So this is uh, the part of the show where we are um, picking a set of songs that is going to introduce you to Jimi Hendrix and his music. So I'm not just picking what I think are the six best Hendrix songs or my six favorite Hendrix songs. Rather, I'm picking songs that if you're not familiar with his music, these songs are going to introduce you to him as a as a guitar player, as well as a songwriter. And I'm also picking them and ordering them in a way to where they flow nicely from start to finish. So um, I'm trying to get them to transition well off each other and to have, by the end, some kind of cathartic moment, a release of emotional tension. So um, the way that you can go listen to these songs is uh, a link in the description of the episode will take you to a Spotify playlist. And not only will the songs from this episode be there, but all the songs from our previous episodes as well. So make sure you go check those out. And so we're going to start where I think is probably where anyone should start (laughs) their Jimi Hendrix journey. And that is with the song purple haze now this this song is important to me because i actually this is one of the first songs i ever learned period oh that's awesome which well to play with a band for the purpose of playing with the band obviously i had learned songs before like i talk a lot about the uh, uh, crazy train and you yeah. really got me and stuff 
But this was one of the first songs that I learned specifically to play with a group of other musicians. And I didn't like the song originally. And it took like me sitting down and actually deciding, okay, I'm going to finally learn it because the other guys want to play this song. And I realized that there's a lot of like really interesting like lead stuff in there. And he plays like different lead lines all over the place and sticks licks in here and there and whatever. And the riff is really, it's, it's very proto metal. And, mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a lot of kind of the stuff that you would not hear on a Beatles album or an Elvis record completely. I wouldn't say completely out of left field, but it's, it's definitely further than guitar was at the time. Yes. I would agree with that. Um, I I am in a similar experience where I actually, for the longest time, did not like this song, and I didn't get the hype around it. I was just like, it's okay. Mm-hmm. But the more I would listen to it, and it's funny because what I'll do is, since I don't actually play guitar, the way that I'll kind of get familiar with how the guitar parts are constructed is by playing it on Rock Band. Yeah. And the <laughs> and the... They have the entire Are You Experience and the entire Axis Bold as Love albums available on that game. Wow. And so, of course, I bought both of them just to get as familiar as I could with his guitar playing specifically. Mm-hmm. And it was when I played through it, I was just like, oh, okay, I feel like I really now understand what the guitar's doing here. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, grew very much in appreciation for it but the reason that i said earlier that this is the most logical place to start is because this is the first song on his first album wow now now there is a little bit of an asterisk to that because um the in the european and the american version of this album are completely different really Yes, that used to be a very common thing back in the day. They don't do that anymore. Really, since the 70s, that has not been a thing. But in the 60s, it was very normal to have entirely different versions of European and American records. Like just a different structure or different songs completely? Both. Why? why? So, (laughs) so, So in Europe... um it was standard practice that if you released a song as a single, it did not appear on the album. Mm -hmm. That the album is meant more for deeper cuts and the singles are meant for radio. Where in America, you put the singles on the album. That's how you sell the album. Mm -hmm. So the version, the, the album that everyone's familiar with is the American version, which starts with Purple Haze where the European version doesn't even have Purple Haze on it because that was the second single. Mm-hmm. Hey Joe was the first single, Purple Haze was the second one, and then When Cries Mary after that. So um, so on the European album, the album starts with Foxy Lady, which is still a pretty great way to introduce the world to Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, that's true. But... Um, you know, for American audiences, Purple Haze was the beginning. Mm-hmm. And 
And of course, you know, through all the reissues, it's gone with Purple Haze being the opening song. And this has become kind of like his anthem. Like, if you were to ask someone to name a Jimi Hendrix song, Purple Haze is typically the first one they'll, they'll oh. think of. Oh, yeah. Even if you've never heard the song, everyone knows that that's his song. Well, and just yeah, and just that that yeah, and that opening guitar line is just very iconic. I would argue that we have equally as iconic uh, songs on this set list, but two of them are covers, so they don't really count. <laughs> But uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I would say the same thing in that also it's a good pick for him strategically to put at the front of the album because it opens, with, it opens with that uh, really weird uh, uh, tritone that's totally like what, like that's the devil's chord, right? We talked about like the superstition surrounding him being left-handed right can you imagine being a superstitious person and there's the devil chord and and uh it it's not meant to sound particularly uh appealing to the ears but it's supposed to kind of get your attention and let you know that you're not in for something that's normal it it isn't going to start with your uh, uh, uh twist and shout bum 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 you know it's not <laughs> that's not how it starts he could have started yeah, it like that, but it would not have been the the you're in for it opening. Yeah, here comes the pain. <laughs> it's uh yeah, this it's very ominous. It it you know, you can definitely um um see how this can be a precursor to heavy metal. Which, you know, heavy metal still hadn't been invented yet at this point. Jimi Hendrix was definitely one of the ingredients that leads to um to heavy metals formation and uh i really i real quick wanted to backtrack because you said we have two cover songs but i can only think of there's only one on this set maybe maybe i'm thinking of one of them being covered by somebody else it's probably what it is that's probably yeah because okay. his songs have been covered there's yeah there's only i was like real quick fact checking i was just like I'm sure there's only one. Let me just real quick I, make I just, sure that I didn't I miss just, something critical. We'll we'll get there when we get there. But this yeah. is definitely an original of his. Oh, yeah. Not to be confused this, with Purple Rain, obviously. Yeah, and this was one of the first songs he ever wrote. He actually did not really start writing his own songs until he got to England. Wow. Whenever he was doing his um, his early sets as a solo artist he was mostly doing covers of blue standards just jimified hmm. yeah there wasn't much jimification on this song considering it's pretty much just all him mm -hmm. but the drums and the and the bass are sort of comping whatever he's doing yes they recorded this song very quickly <laughs> yeah they're in yeah. the span of in the span of like a couple hours but they spent almost an entire day mixing this song. Oh wow! <laughs> just why? Just cause? Just just because they wanted to get the right sound to it. I mean, that's what you do when you when you get a good take like that. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. you can kind of tell they put a little bit of extra care into making the guitar lines when they kind of hit those high notes towards the beginning of that that final solo kind of mm-hmm. kind of sound really mm-hmm. kind of sing a little bit and then of course the ending with the with the weird uh pitch shifted weird i don't even know yeah sound obviously that was something different that would take a little bit of extra work to get sounding just right without being you know too screechy and things like that so he's using a he's using an octave pedal on this song yeah that's that's what it's that's what it sounded like well, I, I do I know for sure he is because the interesting fact is that the octave pedal was built specifically for him for this song. Now, uh, are you talking about like an octave fuzz? Because I know that was a big deal for him too. Yeah, uh, as well as the the wah pedal was was created for him. Wow, he was the whoa. He, so so whenever he started to get big, he would commission. Um, gear to be made because he needed stuff to create the sounds that he had in his head and so people would send him stuff before anyone else had them and he would get to be the first one to record with them so he he has the first you know he's the first person to record using a wah pedal as well as an octave pedal that octave fuzz actually ends up becoming such an iconic sound of that era of guitarists because mm-hmm. it's not only will you turn an octaver and your guitar sounds an octave higher, but but it would be maybe like five ten percent of that higher octave would be part of your distortion going right into your amp, and it would make the guitar sound a little bit brighter and a little bit fuller and give it a little bit more oomph, you know. And that that was something that a lot of guitarists after him would start using. And so, in a way, he's kind of like the Eddie Van Halen of technology of that time, too. Yeah. So, lots of the more similarities I was seeing, I was just like, okay, this is getting crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's the song about? The drug. So that that's, I mean, that's the easy answer, yeah. but there's also several conflicting messages. Um. Jimi Hendrix himself said that it's a love song, hmm. but he has also been shown to be an unreliable source. <laughs> so just because he says it's a love song doesn't mean it actually is. Uh, I mean, we could take him at his word, but you know, there's also very little to do with love in the song. When you look at the lyrics, right. the lyrics He's because he's also said on a different occasion that the song is about a dream that he had about being underwater. That's the one I heard. And so you know you've got you've got both ones because the line that he points to about it being a love song is whatever it is this girl has put a spell on me. But it's like people are trying to really work with the lyrics to tr- make that interpretation work saying like okay is it uh saying that like being in love is the is like being high that love is a drug but at the same time it's the the descriptions are so psychedelic it's it honestly just sounds like a trip that's what that's like what a lot of the songs in this sound like uh-huh 
and you know it's just you look at a lot of the lyrics it's just it's it's um it's all describing drug related hallucinations and feelings and environments and so it's just like you know the 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 generally correct answer is that this is just a song about being on acid yeah yeah whether whether or not it really is we probably won't ever truly know because the source is no longer with us right but i i personally am not of the opinion that it is a love song this would be a really frightening love song if it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it would. And and this also is is a good example of Jimi Hendrix having famously misheard lyrics. Yeah. Excuse me while I kiss the sky. Yeah. And it's kiss the sky. Yeah, a lot of people have, have thought that. Yes. <laughs> there there are a couple instances the... of that. So yeah, one of the one of the ones I always think. Anytime you have something of the sky, uh, like I always think of Foo Fighters, "Learn to Fly," looking to this guy to save me. I always think of that. Lyric. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't. I've never heard. I that always. Before, but okay. That's funny. <laughs> Whenever I sing along, I kind of like have this brief moment where I'm just like, "Am I? Am I singing looking to this guy to save me?" <laughs> I never I never had made the mistake on Purple Haze before, but it's one of those things that like, you know, once you think it you're just like, oh yeah, it'd be easy for people to think that that's what he's saying. You can't unhear it. Mhm. Yeah. Now, whenever he would play live, he would say, "Excuse me while I f the sky." Oh no. So then you add in the misheard part there and it gets even weirder. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's funny. Where's the song on the rankings? I put this at number 10. Oh wow. Ooh. I think I think I think that this is a very important song. Obviously like, you know, you get into the 50s with him and you're still at great songs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think that be- the thing that I think hurts the song the most is that it's so short. Because the songs that are higher up on this list are his longer, more extended guitar yeah. jams that really truly show up. We only really get a taste of what of what he's capable of, which I think is also what makes it great for being the first song on the set. Is that this is this is an introduction. Yeah, and this is actually one of the other reasons why uh, Jimi Hendrix has been disappointed in this song, is that he wanted this to be a a long song, and um, his producer was the one that coerced him into uh, cutting it down to a radio-friendly single length, Mm. and he was not happy about it, and so he kind of disowned the studio version of this song. Mm. Hmm. Well, and I I think I agree with him because it feels like there's more that needs to be done, that there's more song to be played. Yeah, I get that feeling too. 
but obviously you know when i was with those guys and we do this song we we'd kind of extend it a little bit towards the end and we'd all kind of take a little bit of, of soloing and, and whatever and so it was i guess that kind of fits we didn't know it at the time i certainly didn't know it at the time it kind of fits what his vision for the song was and so the fact that we mm-hmm. instinctively did that i think that that shows that he that's where the song naturally right. wants and to it go. also shows that he had an intuition for what music should be more than his producers at the time which is kind of yeah kind of makes sense looking back on it because he would become such a big deal influentially in music that he literally changed what the status quo was for music because those producers mm-hmm. know exactly what the status quo was and you'll and you'll find that once he gets to electric ladyland nobody's telling him what to do or how a song should right sound. or how long it should be uh-huh he's gonna he's gonna do what he wants it's sort of like a queen with the bohemian rhapsody and they wanted it to be on the radio or, you know yeah uh-huh so anyway i think i am am exhaust well not exhausted but I think that the, the <laughs> listeners may or may not be exhausted with this song. But I know for a fact that we want to talk about the next song. Yes, and so the second song on the set being Crosstown Traffic. This song to me sounds like the end of like uh, like a comic book movie. But like like hmm. like a kid's comic book movie, like Into the Spider Verse. I feel like it fits at the end of that movie. Like the credits. I feel like only... this could be more like opening credits of like a comic. <laughs> like this, yeah. <laughs> um, by the way, this is this is my uh, personal favorite of the set. Really? Wow! Yeah. This is like this is like your second song miss for me. Where it's like I like this song, oh. I like this song, but compared to the other ones, it's my least favorite. I don't know how you do this, I... but consistently, the second one has has just been not as good. Man, this this song just bangs for me. The rhythm track on this song just it slams so hard. <laughs> it's it slaps, as the kids would say. Yes. Yeah. I I know how the kids talk. It, it would it has a really weird um uh Lila the do 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 and I can't tell what instrument that is. It sounds like like a like a talk box almost. It's actually him putting tissue over a comb and blowing into it. What? Wait, really? Or like a kazoo? Yep. Yeah, like mimicking a kazoo, but homemade version. That's kind of cool. I was gonna say, I was like, sounds like a kazoo. <laughs> that's what I was. That's what it is. I didn't. When he said tissue over a cone and blowing into, I don't know how that made me think of a kazoo, but like, kazoo makes more sense than a talk box. But but that's just always where my mind went because it's like, oh. He's a guitar hero. Of course, he's going to have to talk box. I'm surprised that this is your favorite song again because this song is so short. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah. Um, I just, to me, this song just has such a such an attitude to it. Like, I love, I love his vocal on this song. I think that it it just oozes charisma. The way that he's kind of like talk singing the, his way through the verses. Yeah. It's just, it has this allure to it that it's just like, I can't help but just like smile when I hear I feel like it. you're a sucker for that though, being like queen, like queen and that kind of stuff being, because that's really reminiscent of more Which, by the way, singing. Jimi Hendrix was Freddie Mercury's favorite performer of all time. Wow. Really? Yep. Crazy wow. how everything's connected. Yeah. So uh, they played Purple Haze quite often live. Really? Wait, Queenwood? Yep. That's pretty cool. I don't. I don't think we have any recordings of it, but it's been documented. Um, to me, this is just like um, I don't know because it's you know objectively I ranked it at number eleven. Mm-hmm. Because I understand that it's a shorter song. Mm-hmm. There's not as much going on compared to others. But it's just one that when I put my personal feelings into it, like, I just, there's just something about this song that just, like, I gravitate towards it. What's it about? Uh, it's about sex. Yeah. Oh, right. That, that would have been it's just, guess. it's just, com- it's comparing, uh. I mean, like, he's pretty much dissing this woman, saying that, you know, she's been all over town. Yeah. And, you know, tire tracks all across your back. I can see you've had your fun. And he's pretty much telling her, just like, you know, I'm I'm just another person on my way through. And I'm kind of almost like I'm the same as you. I'm just trying to get to uh, I'm going through town as well. And you're the you're the cross town traffic. It's clever though yeah it's it's a, it's a great use of double entendre and um to where it doesn't completely beat you over the head with yeah. it but there's just it's just it's an immediate shot of just great rock goodness i i love the uh I love that the stop and stutter on the verses of the ba and the drums keep going the ba and then yeah I just I just love everything about this song mm, except for its length I'm sure but see to me I can't imagine this song going longer. I can't I think that it's I think that this it's not like Purple Haze where I'm just like I feel like we got cheated out of a little bit of extra song i think that this song is the length that it needs to be any longer and it would overstay its welcome. especially because everything that happens in the song is everything that's repeated in the song is um very short like that lead line and that you know when they do the builds up at the end of the course uh-huh you can only do that so many times before people are like, hello, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, yeah, I I can see, Lucas, how this would be your favorite song because it's very pop. Yeah. 
you know it, it's it's like it's got the pop double entendre and the pop uh lead line it's very sing-alongy it's for the most part the structure is like you can understand it like you can turn your brain off and listen to this song and it's also got the the energy that is good for pop and it does get you smiling mm-hmm. and we have, a, song. we have a, a special little thing at the end too it sounds like there's a fade out and then there's applause and i'm wondering what that's about so um, that actually will come into play with a song later in our list. Oops. And I'll explain more about that when we get to it. So I'll, I'll leave you hanging so for just a little bit. on this song, but you're not going to explain it? Uh, well, because I don't want to give away what's coming next for those that haven't listened to that uh, part okay. yet. Okay. Well, then... But it just it's a it's a it's a bleed into the next song, which uh, um, kind of has a very specific vibe to it. Ah uh-huh. ha! Okay. Ooh. And and that would be the one two songs from now. But you stuck yes. something between them. I did. <sighs> okay. I'll I know. To, I'll Just because I, I, I wanted I wanted Crosstown at number two, but I wasn't ready. The the mood isn't ready yet for that song in this okay. context. It was, you know, in a perfect world I could I could have yeah. the two of them together, but to accomplish what I need to accomplish for this set, it's it's we're not ready to show our hand yet for that <laughs> song. We still need a we still need to warm up and I think that um the next song does that but before we go to that um Ethan I want to get your opinion on on this I, track I think that Crosstown Traffic is a great second song I I think it's the crazy thing hearing you guys talk about it is like it's it's hard to imagine talking about an artist in the context of like that there wasn't really like metal or like really hard rock before this you know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so it's interesting whenever you listen to the song from that perspective. Then it's like Crosstown Traffic is so unique in the context. Yeah, it's really heavy. Yeah. It's pretty heavy for its time in comparison to anything that had been at that time at all. And so whenever you listen to the and like it's really funky. It's like mm-hmm. weird heavy blues. So I it's not my favorite. Uh but I I I agree where it's like you just listen to it and you're just kinda like if you just get into that like stank face bob your head mode, like you can it's a really easy song to just vibe with. And the the kazoo. I, I appreciate yeah. the kazoo. The kazoo is kind of funny, actually, in a way. Yeah, I, th- I think that it's a really nice touch. I, it's I, kind of one of those things where it's I like bet that he did the kazoo thing because he wanted his guitar to sound like that, and that pedal didn't exist. Probably, that's probably very true. Because I don't think Talkbox was a thing at that point yet. I think that that's more when we get to early seventies at that 
like that technology that, comes like, around really fuzzy high-pitched thing like nowadays like you wouldn't need a kazoo for that exact noise because like we can just make a guitar sound like that right yeah but yeah and and i've noticed lucas you remember when we when we had our doors episode and we had crystal ship right before we went to riders on the storm uh-huh. and crystal ship acted as the palate cleanser before that i've noticed you've started mm-hmm. putting your palate cleanser at spot two that this is kind of the least intense song of the set yeah i kind of i it it varies on kind of where i want my final destination to be and how we get there because really we've got kind of two palate cleansers on the this fifth set. song kind of does it but i would say this one is more mainstream sounding to what we have musically today than our fifth. yeah yeah i can see that yeah for me it kind of just depends on the set um depends on what where i feel like i need to go and for me this is just like a great song to keep the momentum moving forward and um you know just to just to have something throw in something fun yeah, yeah. in there before we before things start getting really nice heavy. and bluesy because be, because things do get very heavy as we get in later in heavy the as in chug but heavy as in like emotion blues the blues really heavy it's the blues uh-huh. we gotta get sad yeah i'm ready to get sad so we'll go ahead and go into the next song of the set which is little wing this is another song that um I learned early on in my uh, career, my musical career, playing with other musicians, because our drummer at the time he was big into Jimi Hendrix and whatever, and so we were playing Purple Haze and we were playing Little Wing and we were playing Nightbird Flying, which I was actually sad to see wasn't on this list. So spoiler alert, it's not <laughs> here. Um, and and songs like that, and so. This this was again another one that has an intro that that's sort of reminiscent of Purple Haze, just in a very different way. It's not an intro that's going to like tell you, oh, this song's going to be very intense. It's going to have a lot of guitar stuff. It's more like, obviously, it introduces the chord progression that pervades through the whole song, but it also shows sort of his bluesy emotional side and not his you know, intense technical jam side. And and also yeah. shows that he can slow down and still be just as good and still hold his own. But at the same time, I feel like that we're taking a step up from the previous two songs in guitar play. Yeah. There's so much, there's so much little detail. And I really wanted to have a song right here where we, where the guitar really shines in of itself. Where, where, um, you know, like in Purple Haze, sometimes it's hard to pick out what the guitar is doing, um, but it's still a great introduction to his playing. Crosstown Traffic really kind of bumps things up a little bit because the guitar is more defined, but it's still not doing anything like crazy. 
And this song, um, the guitar really shines here. I mean, you've got that that iconic intro, mm-hmm. and um, the guitar is very clean on this song. You can hear every little thing that he's doing. Yeah, where it's not it's not as it's not as fuzzed out as other songs on this. Now, set. this isn't a cover. No. He wrote this song, but this is a very covered song. So this was the one that you were thinking of? I thought of. it was a Stevie Ray Vaughan song. No. Oh, Stevie Ray Vaughan is Stevie Ray Vaughan is, is another 15 I years didn't know. from this. Okay, I didn't know. I... Yeah, he doesn't... He, his first album doesn't come out till the 80s. I assumed he was like 400 years old. Just, I don't know. <laughs> Mentally, no. somewhere in the back He's... of my mind, I just thought that he's not part of the original blues guard he's actually part of the blues revival okay that comes later uh, i will say little wing is my favorite song out of the set really Ooh, yeah it is it's it's a close there's a close second um be, just because of where I come from, the the other song almost did it. I I, I found myself because I've listened to this set like three or four times, mm-hmm. and every time that Little Wing would come on, I would be so happy that yeah. it came on. It, it, it just hit me on that level. Where I'm just like, yeah, and it's also because like this song is just it's straight up blues, you know? Yeah. It, oh yeah, it's just like this is the blues. And so every time it came on, I would, it would just like I'd just be like, "Wow, this is just good. It's just good blues." Of- where where Crosstown Traffic was maybe a little bit more exploratory into like rock. Little Wing is is just pure blues. There's very interesting things to note in this song, theory wise, as far as he's not necessarily staying in one scale he's jumping out of the octave even for the chord progression towards the end we hit like a like a f major when we're in e minor and so that should tend itself towards phrygian but the song is definitely in e minor um and then there's also like the it towards the end there's the g minor or g major f major c major d major that that pulls you back into the whole E minor E minor uh, chord progression and he follows that with some of his lead lines that not only is he just staying in that normal blues box position and hitting whatever notes in there sound good which he could do that and pull off the song but he doesn't and and he the lead lines also jump out of out of the um, octave and he has such a sense of how notes relate to each other that you don't normally see in something like blues that's built around a scale. More yeah. rigid yeah. rules. It's, yeah. weird, it's weird to talk about blues having rigid rules, but you don't see this kind of thing in blues very often. Yeah. It's almost cool. more gas, yeah. especially before 
before Jimi Hendrix, blues was... I mean, once you got to the solo section, you know, it's kind of, you know, the gloves are off, like the rules are are loose. But chord progression-wise, before Jimi Hendrix, blues was very... Not that there was a form to every song, but there's a blues... There is a blues form, right? But there were just twelve bars. There were, there was kind of an old guard to blues where they were trying to like preserve the sanctity of the genre by not letting it change with the times. <laughs> uh huh. And that's why Jimi Hendrix got in so much trouble, was because he was trying to change, and they were just like, "No, this is not how the blues is played. You got to play it this way," because, you know, the people that were considered the greatest guitar players in the world at that time were the ones that were copying what the what the previous legends had already done if you could sound exactly like bb king then you were the best guitar player in the world yeah it it sounds kind of like our uh, gregorian chant episode there's a A lot of there's and we've talked about this especially on the ancient music podcast which everyone needs to go listen to but we especially talk about how much music grows and develops with more access to music and more experimentation. And I think every every time that we get to it, it's because jazz was the same way. Jazz, jazz got to a point where it was like Miles Davis just transcended the genre. And then everyone that was in that era tried to copy him for so for a long time. And then everything became about jazz sounding like Miles Davis and and all the, the the old guard of jazz was trying to not let jazz change past that. And then recently, like it's it's been branching out and it's been great. Same with blues and then Jimi Hendrix comes along. Same with I mean, every genre has that. Every genre has its like people that don't want it to change. And then it takes those new people coming to the forefront. But that also makes a lot of sense why Jimmy wasn't successful in America first, because America was a blues. I mean, America was the blues. America was Robert Johnson blues, man. Yeah. And then that makes sense that he goes over overseas to an audience that had that doesn't have the same context of the blues and the same context for guitar playing. And him just being mm-hmm. able to just blow up over there first. Yeah. Yeah, Little Wings just a great yeah. song. That's why it's my favorite. I can't really... like. Obviously, the guitar playing is good. It's just... It, it strikes me... It just strikes me good. Where, where is it ranked? Number six. Mm. Yeah. And where, where's... Uh, like, what? what's the song about? The song is about um, a girl that he was with, although we don't know which girl specifically, about someone that kind of was, he would consider to be too good for him, someone that he didn't deserve, someone that he um, has abused and used, and he's realizing that she deserves better, and he's telling her to fly on, and he's calling her the little mm. wing. Uh, great blue. Song. Fly on to someone. Fly on to someone better than me. Hmm. 
That's a lot deeper yeah. than I thought it was. That's great. And, uh, you know, he just, he sees her as almost like this goddess. You know, the first verse describing, um, you know, what what he sees in her. And then the second verse saying how he treats her and, you know, that he's someone that doesn't deserve a woman as good as her, so he's going to release her. Yeah. So the there's very little lyrics in this song. The guitar is more of the center of the of the song. But even yeah, even in the small little bit of lyrics we have, there's there's a pretty profound message there. So who plays the xylophone? That's my question. Glockenspiel <laughs> <laughs> like or whatever. I could find out because. I would assume it would be one of the other two, but you also kind of hear it during the verses. So it, I, I would assume it'd have to be a fourth person and it is on, it is on a, no, it's not on electric lady land. Is it? No, this is on axis bold of love. So the second record. So that's interesting. It's crazy that this is so good and it's just the second record. Yeah, that's true. Well, yeah, it, that is that is Jimmy himself playing the oh, Glockenspiel and whatever. Gotcha. Uh-huh. Okay, I guess that makes sense because he would be able to understand his flow of like how he plays that intro better than anybody else. Yeah, because that would probably be tough for someone else to come in. And, and, and the learning curve for the glockenspiel is about zero. So no offense to any <laughs> professional glockenspiel players, but playing a part like this, Ooh. like, you know, give the man a break. Like, it's it's not like it's... That's a nice You're not vibe. playing Spirit of the Radio on a glockenspiel. So. And it is a nice vibe. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice little touch. Well, um, if we don't have anything else to say, it's Easton's favorite song. That's that's the that's the big thing that I've heard. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, we'll go ahead and move on to the next song, the 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 mammoth yes. of this set, Voodoo Child, Voodoo Chili. <laughs> yeah, it's not pronounced Voodoo Chili. <laughs> This this it's was just, almost my favorite. This is also almost my favorite. And I would argue that had you asked me yesterday, it would have been my favorite. Maybe by the end of this podcast, I'll change my mind. But... Maybe. Um, no, this this is probably one of the songs that I would say is transcends Jimi Hendrix himself. Because I knew that this song had existed before I knew very much about any other Jimi Hendrix songs. Like this was one of the songs that that is like, oh, Jimi Hendrix, he does Purple Haze and Voodoo Child. And everyone pronounces it Voodoo Chili, but don't pronounce it Voodoo Chili. You know? So I never pronounced it Voodoo Chili until right now. And it's kind of there's a little pain in my chest every time I Does it does uh, it, it feel wrong? wrong? But I was listening to it on the it came on the radio. And I was listening to it with my mom in the car, and it was like, 
I was still in high school, so we were driving home from like a basketball game or whatever. And um, now you probably didn't hear this voodoo child. No, probably on the radio. Well, yeah, probably. you 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 probably heard the more famous sibling, which is the slight return. Maybe. Which is which is the big radio hit. Well, okay. The radio, the radio. Well, now, now it, now it is. The radio the said time, voodoo but. child. And so my mom was like, what song is this? Voodoo Chili? And I had to correct her because I physically cringed when she said that. <laughs> but what, what is this? Voodoo Chili? Yeah. Kevin's famous Voodoo Chili? Yeah. No. Um, but it is, this is what I'm talking about where his songs sound like everybody kind of knows the song. Everybody kind of knows the riff and we all just kind of show up and jam and see what happens. That has this vibe. And I would assume this is what you're that the vibe that you're talking about that we get when we end Crosstown traffic and we have that applause. This is the song yes. right after that. And you get you get that uh-huh. throughout the song. It sounds like they're playing in like a bar somewhere, and it's like late at night. And you know, everybody who's there is you know partially inebriated or gone home, and there's multiple people smoking, and everybody's just kind of listening and having a good time, and just chilling out and that's the, that's that's the vibe that i get from this song and that's why it was a big contender for my favorite song is because when you have music like that that can kind of bring people who otherwise wouldn't really know each other together to just kind of sit and enjoy each other's company that's really cool and even though it was staged i still like that it actually really wasn't staged. Oh. Are you talking about are you talking about the, the casual nature yeah. of it? And like the crowd so kind let's, of applause and the voices at the end. Yeah. So let's talk about what that is. So um one night uh in the middle of recording Electric Ladyland, um he went and played just a local mm-hmm. gig. And uh, of course, like a lot of his gigs at that time, there are some famous people there, mostly um, members of the band Traffic. What a, what a coincidence! Were there, as well as um, oh yeah, uh, as well as members of Jefferson Airplane. Ooh. And so he. Uh, just invited them to come back to the studio with them and hang out mm-hmm. and just impromptu jumps on guitar. Mitch Mitchell gets on the drums. Then Jack Cassidy of Jefferson airplane gets on bass and Steve Winwood of traffic gets on. Keys. So it's not even really his band. Not really. It's his drummer, but that's it. And they, and they just jam. And what we get right here is the third take of that jam. And then, and there's a ton of other people in there that are just like pretty much just getting to kind of watch a an album be made. And yes, they are 
probably quite inebriated. And it's just, you know, it's very casual. They even have video footage of it, <laughs> of them recording the song live in the studio. That's cool. There's no cuts on this. This is a full, true, authentic 15-minute take. Did it make up, the, uh, make up the lines as he was going? No, I believe that because he had kind of been working on the song. So I think that he already had the song and had kind of just real quick, just like, hey, you know, this is this is the general how the song feels. And but at the same time, I. I actually don't quite know, I feel like it was probably a mix of both. He had some song words figured out, but it also just feels like your typical blues rambling. It does sound like every once in a while he'll like say a really cool line. And then he'll be like, ha ha. And, you know, they'll all be like, ooh, that was a good one. That, that, yeah, almost like, a, um, like the 60s equivalent of freestyle yeah, rapping. That's yeah. exactly what I, what I felt from it because he'd, he'd say, like, you know, I'm a thousand miles away and yet I'm still right here in your picture frame. It's like, ooh, good one, you know? That, that was, that's the one that comes to mind. And then, of course, there is the hook of yeah, like I, and... I feel like that that line he already knew beforehand that he oh, wanted to okay. use. Um, but he probably didn't have too much more than that. Um, I love that opening line of the night I was born. I swear the moon was a fire red. That's just such. That's such a great blues line. Yeah. That just kind of sums up, you know, blues music right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My favorite, my favorite joke blues line ever is my mama left me before yeah. I was born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was. A... But that's like, but that's like a legit, you know, non cliched version of that line where it's just like you know it's 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 haunting it's 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 blues but it's hardcore at the same time yeah and but so at this point i wanted to just i wanted to have a song where it's just you know when after you hear this song you'll know why Jimi hendrix is the greatest guitar player of all time i wanted to have a guitar extravaganza showcase song. And this truly does, and, I feel like, get to the like the Jimi Hendrix the Jimi Hendrix experience where it's like his roots just being in like blues improv. Mm-hmm. Where it's just like because I mean, if you don't know, the song's like fifteen minutes long. Right. And and a big majority of the song is just everybody just kind of going off, and especially Jimmy, right. where the, where it's just people just taking turns, just throwing ideas out, and then Jimmy just takes a solo that's like insane, right? And also there, and especially for the and, time, it was insane, right? And there's also just a lot of there's a lot of uh, interesting little you know quick hammer on techniques and and quick bends and whatever that he'd do um which you know bending was a thing that was very both bending and hammer-ons were actually a big thing that a van halen would do 
Um, and they're obviously a big thing that a lot of guitar players now would do. Um, because we talked about Eddie would get have to get his guitars refretted every two weeks because he'd been so much. But there's a lot of, of that in here. It sounds like he's switching maybe pickups a lot sometimes. Um, and then also there's it's not just him playing. Every once in a while he'll kind of lay back and there'll be like, you know, some keyboard playing. Yeah. And, you know, the drums will kind of kick in and do some stuff. I don't hear a lot of bass necessarily being showcased. Yeah, Jack, Jack Cassidy is not as known much for being like a virtuoso bass player. He's, I'm sure that he was just kind of keeping everything anchored down. Tell me that. But, um, but someone that really, and I think that we can now really talk about Mitch Mitchell as a drummer because he, I mean, obviously in Jimi Hendrix band, everyone's going to talk about Jimi Hendrix and it's easy for the other band members to kind of get yeah. overlooked. But I think that, um, Mitch Mitchell is probably one of the best and most influential drummers mm. of all time. Because he, him and Ginger Baker were kind of like before the, 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 the big three came along, which would be John Bonham, Keith, mm -hmm. and Neil Peart uh, came in the, in the seventies and really revolutionized rock drumming. Like the standard that everyone was held to was Ginger Baker and Mitch Mitchell, who were much more jazz influenced yeah. drummers. And that's why John Bonham was so massively influential when he came around was he was the first rock drummer to kind of take everything out of being um, jazz, R&B, blues, and just introduced the pure rock and roll drum beat of just pummeling the snot out of everything. Yeah. Because when you watch Mitch Mitchell play, he uses traditional grip. And so, you know, you can tell that he is more classically trained and you can, and that he's more from the jazz field and he's a very loose player. He's not, you know, he's not, I mean, he's solid, but not like solid as in like he's not a boxy yeah. player. The even the way that he his drums are tuned, like the second that I, I mean, right whenever you hear the toms, it's just like why? Because you're I'm so used to equating rock drum sound with this guitar tone, I guess. You know what I'm saying? Uh -huh. And so whenever I heard the toms, I was just like, that, those toms are tuned for jazz. Hmm. Like, the way that they sound, and and obviously, there's no hard and fast, like, you have to tune your toms this way for whatever genre. Right. But usually, whenever you hear jazz drums, they're tuned this way. Mm -hmm. um, just, like, the really tonal toms, you know? most like rock stuff i mean neil pert is different because his tom he has so many toms that he can have them be tonal he's they're tuned yeah. to everything but like a lot of like the og drum guys that don't have like massive drum kits like their their toms are more about feel like it's just like 
and 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 you don't really care what tone it is like they don't ring out they're just drums but for this and even yeah lucas the way that he's playing is very jazz it's it's jazz and he's like plussed it up a lot because of blues because he's following jimmy's lead yeah. in terms of like genre def- definition yeah uh because yeah he he has a moment where he just really lets yeah, he, loose it's like a, a little bit past just, the halfway point and just annihilates the kit but just again, not in a way that a typical rock drummer would. Yeah. It's it's very much a more of a, a jazz drum solo. Yep. Yeah, and we get a little bit of that in, in Little Wing actually, which was kind of a little bit of a precursor to this. But Little Wing obviously was a little bit more guitar centered. This one is is a little bit more band centered. This song, I mean. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, you, and then you got Steve Winwood on top of it, just going out of which you guys know who Steve Winwood um, is, right? He, I don't understand the significance. Oh, man. We'll do an, Steve Winwood deserves his own episode <laughs> because he's, he's one of those legendary uh, people in rock and roll. He's someone that has been in tons of bands, uh, Traffic probably being the most important, as well as having a really big solo career. Have you ever guys heard the song, like, Give Me a Higher oh, Love? Yeah. That's Steve Wood. Oh, wow. And uh, the the video of Prince shredding on While My Guitar Gently Reaps, yeah. that's Steve Winwood playing keys on that. Oh. Wow. I, I I've never heard of this guy. Yeah, he's he's a big deal. He we will definitely do a, a full episode on mm. him at some point. All right. So, so yeah, and so the fact that you just because I I looked at the credits for this song and I was just like, holy crap, Steve <laughs> Winwood's playing on this. It's going to start eventually being, oh, of course Steve Winwood played it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I probably am only scratching the surface on everything that Steve Winwood has played on, because he's just that mm-hmm. kind of guy. He's just everywhere. So, so yeah, um, you know, this is, this is a song that, you know, especially if you, it's probably strange to think of you know, the set being the purpose, introducing people to Jimi Hendrix and then throwing a 15-minute song I think in it's there. important, though, because that's more typical than I, people would think. Yeah, I think so, too. I think that this is, especially for those people that don't understand why everyone says he's the greatest guitar player of all time, I think that this song is necessary to show you to have a moment where he's unleashed, and th- the way where he, it's just all of his powers are being the used. way that the song is formatted, I can imagine him sitting in that like New York bar. I can I can see him sitting in that in that bar in New York trying to like just play for people and and everyone being like turned off about it. Just you know what I'm saying, and mm-hmm. and again, I think. 
whenever we were talking about the Van Halen versus Hendrix argument, I think I'm I'm starting to realize more and more and more how like I would say that like if you put if you put them both head to head like on in terms of like just go to town, you know, I I would probably say Van Halen is better, but I don't think that he was more influential because because yeah. Hendrix was like like nothing like this had ever happened at least in in a big commercial way right and probably not even that he was yeah. so on the forefront of that movement that he was in a class all all of his own and so i think putting the 15 minute thing there and like we said for um like we said for purple haze like everybody's like do a three minute song dude just do a three minute song everybody does three minute songs and to put a 15 minute song on there is just so him he's just like no the song is 15 minutes because the experience was 15 minutes mm-hmm. the jimmy hendrix experience i think that's that's well said i don't think i could have said it better myself well, i think we can go ahead and move on to the next song which is The Wind Cries Mary. This is one of those songs that I had heard of for a long, long time. Being like an iconic Jimi Hendrix song. But actually sitting down and listening to this set was the first time I ever heard it. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. And, Very interesting. And I can't say I see why it took me this long because it's I don't know he kind of he kind of plays with the dynamics a little bit with this one and kind of and kind of mm-hmm. uh, he has the uh, the clean guitar sound that he's got on little wing sort of and plays around with you know how how different chord changes and different syncopations work a little bit and it's kind of cool. It's not really normal blues. This was off the same album as Little Wing, right? No, this is off of the first Who album. Are you first album, man? That's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. This was this was this was the third single. So, and the fact that he hadn't really written before this is also stupid. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So I have to ask, what is the song about? So, um, this is based off of uh, an argument that he had with his girlfriend at the time, who was, he literally met her the first day that he landed Mm -hmm. in England, and she um, helped introduce him to a lot of the, him, her and Eric Burden helped introduce him to a lot of the big stars at the time. Her name was Kathy Etchingham. And um, pretty much just one night that they had a big argument and um, he just wrote the song the next day and said that and told her that he he wrote this song about you and played her The Wind Cries Mary. And this, the song uses a lot of really expressive, uh, imagery 
like a lot of psychedelic images like the traffic lights they turn blue tomorrow like that's that's such a drug uh line yeah. that's very much that's very alice in wonderland you know um but pretty much he's just he's using all of this elegant wording just to show a, a relationship that's been shattered somewhere a queen is weeping somewhere a king has no wife and the wind it cries Mary mm -hmm. the tiny island sags downstream because the life they lived is dead and... so it's just it's just you know it's it's using poetic language to describe a, a relationship that's gone bad and is but we also don't know why he uses the name Mary we don't know who Mary is. Probably could be just that that's the name that that sounded best word-wise. I mean, it doesn't sound as good when you say, and the wind cries Kathy. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't have quite the same ring to it. And so I think that Mary was just, a, you know, was the right name to fit that line. But, uh, yeah, this song, after a big giant 15, which, by the way, uh, I, I ranked Voodoo Child as uh, number three wow. on, on the ranked list. And When Cries Mary sits at number eight. All right. Number eight. Um so this this song is just another it's a it's a it's a bit of a sigh of relief after the exhausting 15 minutes yeah, that comes yeah. before it's it's necessary to kind of just take a minute and just kind of collect ourselves uh especially but you kind of still have that because when that when those first chords come in up oh no no you kind of don't know what mood the song's gonna put you in it almost kind of sounds like we're gonna have another dark ominous song but then all of a sudden it transitions into this n nice more bouncy ballad. blues man it's blues mm -hmm. it's blues is always just like weird it's, it's it's like blues is like the acceptance of sadness it, yeah. so it's like all the songs are really sad because the, the song is pretty much about like Will anyone remember us? Because yeah, it's like, because it keeps saying, and the wind cries, Mary, and the wind screams, Mary. And then it said, Will the wind ever remember the names it has blown in the past? And with its crutch and its age old wisdom, it whispers, No, this will be the last. And then he says, And the wind cries, Mary. And then it's the song's over. So it's like, it's all over. You know, the wind cries, Mary. And that was the last time it ever cried, Mary. And then everyone forgot. And, but it's like, so it's like a sad song, but it's like musically, it's just kind of like, yeah, it, yeah, it, we're, we're all going to be forgotten. Let's just sing about it, I guess, and accept that. Mm -hmm. That's kind of all blues songs kind of have that in common where it's like, we're going to sing about something sad, but singing about acceptance of it, you know? Yeah. So that's why all blues songs feel like it's not happy or sad it's some it's just the blues 
it's just something strangely in between. Yeah. But yeah, I just I think, but I do think it's a good bait and switch of just you know, especially if you've never heard the song before and you hear those opening chords. Yeah, it can be this like, oh gosh, another dark yes. song after what we just heard, and then it it changes quite mm-hmm. nicely, and you're just like, oh, and then the next time you hear those three chords, it actually sounds completely yeah. different. Now it's just the tail end of that. It was like, oh, okay, I get what this mm-hmm. is doing now. Um, we also get a nice, just great, soulful guitar solo here. And just showing, again, a bit of a different side of Jimmy's playing. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty we generic just, we... solo, I'd say, compared to his others in this set. It's It doesn't do some... It doesn't do the wild stuff that he does on like Purple Haze. And so it, it kind of, I don't want to say that it's a normal solo because obviously it's Jimmy. And so it's going to be something that's a little bit ahead of the other guitar players of his time. But for us today, this would be a very like, very generic solo. And so it's kind of weird to think that we've come so far from yeah. this that he was such a big deal but but a solo like this today is like we wouldn't bat an eye you know hmm yeah I agree with you everybody loses their minds <laughs> but again remember that we talked about in the beginning of like guitar solos weren't even a thing right like guitar solos didn't even exist you know well, like, yeah, guitar solos but, like in that way. Yeah, I mean, definitely they were not the art form that they became after Jimmy came along, but yeah, guitar solos did exist. But yeah, I I think that again, it's almost like you kind of just gotta, for certain things, you gotta kind of transport yourself back a little bit. I think that. You know, sometimes we do spoil ourselves into just like everything that we have. We kind of forget how incredible certain things were when they came. Um, and I think that that I really like the solo. I think that first off, it's perfect for the song, and I do think that there's there's. Like you think of what who anyone else at that time would have played this solo, and the way Jimmy played it, it's mm-hmm. completely different. Why are all the songs on this album so short? Radio because because this was the one where they were just trying to get lots of hits. Although there's a there's a couple of stretch out songs like uh, his song, the song on their third stone from the sun is is a pretty lengthy psychedelic freak out. But for the most part, yeah, they're, they're mostly pretty short songs, especially because, you know, this is one of the singles that was released. So of course it had to be very short, but this is another one again, where I don't, I don't feel like I'm missing anything from it being short. Yeah. 
I I really love the 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 repeating coda that it does at the end. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. And yeah. And if you guys don't have anything else to say, I, we can talk about um, the way that it sets us I up really for the grand finale. I don't have much to say about this song. I think it, it, you're right. It does serve well to set us up for the grand finale. So let's talk about that. So the final song of the set is All Along the Watchtower. I like this song. This is my favorite, by the way. <laughs> I, I figured it would be, and and this this is what I put Woo! at number one on it the is a, Wow, it is a cover, right? Yes, it is, but probably the 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 greatest cover of all time. Yeah, as far as just him, someone being able to recreate a song into something completely their own and something completely different from yeah, it, it's what one it originally of those very was. Iconic covers, like "You Really Got Me" and "Turn the Page," you know. Okay, I wouldn't say well, "Turn the Page" has become iconic okay, on this level. Well, no, we're actually uh, in a not too distant episode we'll be talking about another song that fits into this category of of something that people would never know that this was a cover so many people i've i've in- encountered over the years never knew that this was a cover song they always assumed that this was his song and i think that that's the i think that's the mark of a gr- the truly right. great cover songs yeah are the ones where it's it's almost inconceivable to think that the artist did what, not write it. One of the it. things that I love the most about this song is the sound design and the fact that they're able to make it sound like what the name sounds like. It, 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 the sound helps to produce the image that the lyrics are giving as well. And that's very Mm -hmm. important in sound design. And that's why, that's what makes, that. that's what distinguishes a good album from a great album is how well your sound engineers can can really kind of be like artists. I mean, because it opens with those guitar chords and that whatever the click-clack thing is that's got that deep reverb on it. They could have not put that there. But because they... Down, 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 bow, down, 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 down. They could have not put that that reverb there, but because they did, it makes everything sound a little bit more mysterious and a little bit more like psychedelic middle of the night, but the sky is still like pinkish, bluish, kind of like the spirit realm or whatever from Black Panther, you know? And that's that's the kind of feeling that I get, and I also it also makes me think of that one. Um, I think it was like some cologne commercial that used this song. Yeah, recently I have noticed yeah, that. Yeah, and, there was and one. And they also they did really good with with kind of showing the space that I had always thought in my head of what it would be, and so it's very. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's not a testament to how well that they did that commercial. I think that that commercial is a testament to how well his sound engineers and his way of playing and spacing things out and whatever um, are able to give a very particular image to the listener. Yeah. Um, so we talked about this being cover song. Let's let's talk about okay. who he's covering. So this was a Bob Dylan song who Bob Bob Dylan was Jimi Hendrix's favorite artist of all time. Uh, He had a Bob Dylan songbook that he was one of the few possessions that he carried everywhere with him. Bob Dylan was a big influence on the Beatles, as I remember. Mm -hmm. It's the reason why they started to grow and mature as songwriters was after hearing Bob Dylan and hearing him sing about stuff other than just love and getting girls. He was singing about, you know, life and the, the, the questions and the mysteries. And I also understand that he had a, a, he had the Eddie Vedder syndrome of not being able to understand what he's singing. Yeah. Uh, he's he's got a love him or hate him voice, um, but Hendrix love him. In fact, the very first time he ever took acid was listening to a <laughs> Bob Dylan record. Oh my well, goodness, that's actually kind of funny. Just like the way you say that, it being so significant because, of course, this was like psychedelic, you know. But yeah. <laughs> So, um, yeah, he, uh, he, the, the song was on, uh, his John Wesley Harding album, which is kind of one of his more, um, his more mm. obscure albums. It was kind of after his string of really big records like, um, uh, like Highway 61 mm. and Blonde on Blonde and, kind of that big era where he goes electric. This was his album where he goes mm-hmm. back to acoustic. And if you listen to the song, it's really just um, four things going on. You've got a steady snare groove going. You've got acoustic guitar. You've got harmonica and you've got the vocal. And it's a very stripped down, very simple song. And um but the lyric is is kind of the front and center uh, part of the song in Dylan's version. And so you keep the lyric, and then Jimmy really just changes everything else. Yeah. I mean, you still kind of got that snare groove, that da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's kind of still carried over, and of course he's still gives a little bit of the vocal melody the same, but it's changed a lot more to suit Jimmy's style. But obviously the biggest change being all the guitars that are thrown in. And all the guitar solos and everything between, you know, this verse and every other verse and, mm-hmm. and whatever. Yeah, and and so uh, and it's the middle guitar solo that's kind of the big famous one. Um, uh, Guitar, guitar world 
com ranked it the fifth greatest wow. solo of all time. And it's it is one of those ones where it's like when people throw in the conversation of what's the greatest guitar solo of all time, this is one of the ones that typically I've never comes up. Heard that being thrown in. Obviously you're gonna hear Free Bird and Hotel California and Stairway to Heaven, but I've never actually heard this one thrown into that conversation. I've always heard, like, you know, because obviously whenever you're going to talk about greatest guitar solos, Jimi Hendrix in general is going to come up. And I have, over the years, I've always heard this song as being, like, his guitar masterpiece. (laughs) And I have to say, I think I agree with them. Because what I think makes this more special is the fact that, like, some of the other ones we've looked at feel much more improvisational, especially Voodoo Child. I mean, because that's, you know, that's pretty much an extended jam. This one feels so com- so well composed. Like, you can tell that he planned what notes he was going to use as he was going. Because, especially that middle step, big middle solo. Um, like, the he, he almost had, it's almost a bit of a mini suite where he's got these different parts that each yeah. are doing a specific thing. It's it's not just a it's not just a random improvised solo. It's like everything is building towards something of course to the big fiery explosion at the end and he goes into oh, that that I think is the cathartic moment of the set. Absolutely and that's what that was the intention. That's that's the moment. And I that that guitar solo leading into that final verse. It, it, you're right. He is doing a lot of different things. I mean, they start off with kind of a kind of a normal solo there, where with was mm-hmm. meaning normal meaning no no effects, and then he's got everybody. Yeah, and down, then and there's a slide does, section, and then there's what sounds like mm-hmm, which he's actually playing with a he's playing with that, a cigarette lighter. That that would explain the weird sound of it, but mm-hmm. and then there's, there's the law, law section. section where he's also playing octaves as well and sliding with that towards the beginning of it, which is a mm-hmm. big thing in guitar now. Uh, yeah, and then the and then the final part where everything's just crescendoing up to the right. top with that when he comes in with all along the watchtower, like oh yes, that's the moment. That's that was the moment that made mm-hmm. me keep coming back to this song when I first got completely obsessed with it and listened to it on repeat. That was the that was the moment that did it for me. Oh, uh, when you were a kid, or now when you were listening oh, I, to I, this, I for the episode of this song for a while. And yeah, so I figured you did when I was. I was when I was I in just high school ask. and I was kind of getting into the older stuff, this was one yeah. of those songs that was just kind of iconic. And I'm like, yeah, I guess I'll listen to it. And there was about a, a week there where this was like the only song I would listen to. That's happened for many an iconic song. And that's why, you know, every once in a while, it'll kind of surprise you. Like for Hotel California, when you're like, oh, I didn't know that this would be your favorite song i thought you kind of liked the the big radio 
songs that were overplayed or because you thought they were overplayed. But it wasn't that because the overplayed does not get outweighed by how much I actually like it. And if I overplay it to myself, Mm -hmm. it's because I like it. And yeah, I'll get sick of it, but I still remember, I still remember what it felt like when I first listened to it. And maybe that is why, like, I keep listening to things over and over again is because I want to get the first experience again. And you can't ever get the first experience Mm -hmm. again, but you can still re-experience it and kind of put yourself back into where you were when you first heard it. Kind of like when you talked about our Killers episode with um, uh, uh, Battleborn, Battle something. Oh, um, yeah, with uh, yeah. Here With Me. So that's that's kind of another one of those instances with this song is it it's kind of it kind of takes me back to where I was when I first heard it and so I kind of like that and I also I just like the song in general so yeah yeah Ethan what do you think I I agree with I mean everything that you guys are saying is spot on just the the I like how the guitar I was actually going to bring up the guitar solo having just different guitar tones like throughout the solo and just switching on and off to those just building up. I was just just like, I, it almost feels like a, this song almost feels like a guitar final exam. (laughs) Like he's, (laughs) he's taking everything that he's learned and putting it all together. It's the unit (laughs) exam. It's comprehensive of everything that's come before and it's just like, and I think it's good for this set too. It's just like we've we've now condensed everything we've learned about Hendrix into one, really one solo yeah. right here. And then, you know, it's a great summary and of everything. And I think everything. it's a good vocal performance by him too. Like just everything about it is just good. Yeah. It's, it's nice to hear the acoustic guitar in there. Like it's just, so, and, and like what? Uh, Grant was saying just like the sound design on it is just really good like it's just a I can see why you I I would agree that this is like the technical best sounding Jimi Hendrix song out of the list Mm -hmm. yeah I think this is the one that just like this is not the one that turned out great by accident this was like this was everything about this was intended and and meticulously put together and just again you add in the the variable of you know being able to create such a great song out of a cover song and really not anyone know that it is yeah. a cover like this is other than Purple Haze, this is like his big defining song. Like, those are the two songs that everyone, for the most part, remembers him by. And um, the fact that, like, he took someone else's song and made it so uniquely his own and made it so much bigger than the original, I think just, like, that's the little extra thing that just puts it over the top. Yep, I agree. And 
It's got a. It kind of sounds like. Don't take this the wrong way. It kind of sounds like a Blue Oyster Cult song. In a weird way. Oh, I can't. Okay, I won't good. take that. Well, the wrong some way. people don't like Blue Oyster Cult. Um, I do too. But, I do. But um, it's got the infestissimum, you know, drum beat, and that's what I like to call the straight snare, mm-hmm. you know. And it's the right tempo too, and and it's and it's got the guitars that are sort of in unison but also very like um simple and the bass that kind of follows but is still you can't really hear the bass too much it's not like taking the forefront or anything and they they are they're jamming now in the iron maiden sense in that everybody has their part and I would argue it's even tighter than Iron Maiden is because they still, mm-hmm. you know, uh, are, are kind of just doing whatever, especially I, I think of like the end of Hallowed Be Thy Name, right? It, they, they're kind of just very loosely, almost sloppily playing, but not on, not on this song. They're, they're still... Jimi Hendrix is still being very particular about how everything's played. Mm-hmm. So much so that he even it's plays so, yeah, bass it's himself. Sort of like it's this is sort of the antithesis of Voodoo Child mm-hmm. for him. So it, I can I can see how a whole genre, yeah, a whole genre could be birthed from this song by itself. The whole like, genre. I, I was going to say, I can see how a an entire genre could be born just out of this song by itself. Like you mentioned, Blue Oyster Cult. Well, you know what I mean? But just in like this this style of rock with like the like, it's just really you're saying how it could be or how like, because I don't know if that's actually true. I don't know if I don't world. know. I don't know if it's true, but if we're talking about Jimi Hendrix being, if we're talking kind of hypothetical, I can for see it too. Jimi Hendrix, because there's a lot of songs on here that seem like whatever the next generation of guitar players are coming up that are listening to this as it release are just like, I like that song, and we need to make an album that sounds like that. You know, mm-hmm. where it's like it's not totally rock, but you have like the you know what I'm saying? Like this, this song in and of itself is—it's not like blues, right? Like the other ones are blues. It's its own thing. It is a little bit more. It is a little bit more, and I like that about it. That it, you can't. Anytime you can't fit a song quite in a genre, but yeah, it's still it's good, good, it makes it great. You know when it, when it kind of reaches out of the bounds of what you thought that a certain song could be and it's always yeah. pushing the limit just a little bit that's what I was going to say it, it just means that it's pushing boundaries just a little bit it was really pushing boundaries before boundaries that before pushing boundaries was like the thing Yeah, because we were talking very early on in this episode about how there were certain people who did not like the fact that he was challenging what blues was and what music was. And this song is 
a very, 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 very elementary version of that. In that we're kind of still blues, we're kind of still rock, but you can't really tell if it's pop or, or rock or, or blues or which one. And even though that seems kind of very normal to us today, you know, we talked about genres back then being very cookie cutter. So it's, Lucas is right. This is the final exam of, of Jimi Hendrix in that it's got every element of Jimi Hendrix in a cover of all things. So my favorite song Great cathartic moment. Lucas, you made another good set. Yeah. I'm going to go listen to oh, Electric Ladyland after this. I was planning, oh, good luck. I was it's a long album. Before we even did this episode, but I feel like I should, I, even more, I feel like I should do it. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess you stay up till like <laughs> five in the morning anyway. Maybe, so. maybe not tonight. Because that's, I got, it's I got a, exams this week, but it's a very, because it's a double album, so... Maybe I won't. It's very long. But it's, oh, it's sure. definitely worth it. I, I definitely do believe it's his best album. But just prepare yourself for a very long <laughs> okay. journey. And, and expect uh, All Along the Watchtower to come very close oh, to sure. the end of that journey. That's awesome. So... What is this song about? We didn't even get to that, did we? Is this um, another Hotel California? No. Um, the song, I believe, I I I had looked it up and I've already forgotten <laughs> what it was about. Yeah. Let me let me let me take a look again at my uh, um I think cuz I mean uh, it sounds You know what to me I feel like for this for this it doesn't even really matter I think the fact that we that the the mm-hmm. adaptation is really what because it wasn't here. his song, so the lyrics don't really matter. Well, not that they don't really matter, we but like you know, I think at, I think at this point that you know, leaving it there will be the 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 shining testament. Mm-hmm. Um, although you know, I'm looking I'm looking at the meanings right now, and it is saying that yeah, it's cryptic. No one's. And that's that, that's what Dylan, I had though. expected, because it it's got a lot of weird psychedelic stuff. And then you, once you think you know the meaning, and you listen to the first three verses, it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And you finally get to the fourth one, it's like rats. It doesn't even fit that one at all, you know. Like mm-hmm. those very cryptic songs like "Stairway to Heaven" and "Hotel California" and stuff. And that also kind of plays into. I think that the uh, this cover really took advantage of that in the cryptic nature of it and that it, it adds to uh-huh. the mystery of Jimmy himself in a way, even though he didn't even write the song. It still adds to 
But again, a lot of people right. thought it that he still did. adds to the legend. <laughs> so, all right. Well, with that, I think that we can go ahead and wrap up talking about the song. So make sure you guys stay tuned. We're going to come back with final thoughts. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Ethan. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just got done with our second segment, which was our Spotify six songs, which uh, were Purple Haze, Crosstown Traffic, Little Wing, Voodoo Child, The Wind Cries Mary, and All Along the Watchtower. And now it's time for our final thoughts. So, Grant, uh, what has changed in your mind about Jimi Hendrix after this episode? So I think... Lucas was right in saying that Jimi Hendrix is kind of like a mysterious, legendary figure for a lot of guitarists, especially my age, because we're our guitar heroes are like, you know, Dimebag Daryl and Steve Vai and Eddie Van Halen and that generation of, of guitarists, and not so much the Hendrix generation, and certainly not before. And so I never really felt the need to go out of my way to learn anything about him and so he kind of just stayed this mystery and I didn't really know very much about his music either because you know once again he wasn't really one of the he isn't one of the guitar heroes of you know musicians my age um, but even just covering his songs having not known much about him I already knew that he was good and he was a good writer as well and so just learning about specifically the first section of this podcast, um, just learning about his life was very interesting and learning about his career and, you know, what he came out of and the fact that he had not had, you know, the best upbringing and that kind of grew my respect for him in this, in the same way that it grew my respect for, you know, Dave Mustaine, when we did our Megadeth episode, you know, I, I, my appreciation for them cannot get any higher, but even learning just those facets about, you know, Dave and how he had such a bad home life, it, it grew my respect for him even more. And same, same way for, for Jimmy. And it, it just, things mean so much more. I think when you know, what would have happened had they not existed? You know, what would have happened if, if Jimmy, Hend what would have happened to music if Jimi Hendrix had not done what he did for the music world? I don't know. And that's a rhetorical question, but it's, it just makes you think like how influential he was as well. in you know, all genres of music today, his influence has, reach to all genres certainly of american music and i would argue across the world whether people know it or not he has changed music forever and yeah. from such a humble upbringing to that in just just a few years is really crazy yeah. I think it's always good to look back at like all of the it's who 
who who did that quote of like we stand like on the shoulders of giants like that that kind of philosophy of like everything that we are at today was because someone else had like paved the way mm-hmm. and i agree because uh we were listening to uh i think we were listening to the wind cries mary and 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 both you and I, Grant, we were like, yeah, this guitar solo, like, to today's standards is, like, fine. You yeah. Know? But, but looking back and being like, the, that guitar solo then was incredible because no one even thought like that. And to see how Jimi Hendrix, like, the mindset that he had for good, like, everyone does solos like that now like that's like that's like a run-of-the-mill solo nowadays like if someone did that solo like at like a local music hall or whatever and they did a solo like that i would clap but like i would be like good you're you're a fine guitar player you know i I don't know if i'd even do that it's just like okay you can solo right wait till the end of the song but just just to see that like how how far guitar players as a whole have evolved because of the groundwork and the creativity that Jimi Hendrix laid down is really impressive to see his influence just like resonating that much with the community. I'll say for myself, for Jimi Hendrix, I had always known about Jimi Hendrix, but I, I assumed because of how, um, hyped up he is as a guitar player i was like i i guess he's just more like rock and i kind of just like left it at that because i was like i'm not really into rock so that means i'm probably not gonna be that into Jimi hendrix i knew that he was kind of blues you know but also i didn't really know the timeline i didn't really put together that Jimi hendrix and the beatles like were like at the exact same time I didn't really put together that, you know, there's just so many pieces of the timeline that you learn just by doing the podcast where like, now I look at it, I'm like, Oh, he, he, it was less about him being a rock guitar player and more about him just being coming from blues and then just being almost not the first guitar player, but the first one to i mean he just pushed the guitar to its to the limits so far where not only was he the best blues guitar player he was just the best guitar player at all and so anything that he did whether it sounded more like hard rock or whether it sounded more like blues or whether it sounded more psychedelic or whether it was acoustic or more pop like anything that he did was the best and so it's cool to just study someone that was that prolific Yeah, so I uh, I was on another person that was just like, you know, I'm not a guitar player, and so it was my exposure to Hendrix was very, very limited because I just never got into him. And the, the times I would hear him, because of the fact that everyone says that he's the greatest of all time, I would kind of hear him go, yeah, he's not that good. Yeah. I've, you know... Kirk Hammett's a lot better, or, you know, uh, man, John Petrucci can play way faster than him. He's overrated. 
and then I just I would keep seeing it over and over and over again. Jimi Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix. And I was and I just never got it. And then we started to get requests to do a Jimi Hendrix episode, and so I was, that's when I was just like, okay. It's time for me to figure out the answer to this once and for all. I need to understand why everyone is saying this. And I feel like I finally now understand it. I don't think that it's all hype. I don't think that it's, you know, the philosophy of whoever does something first does it the best. Um, In most situations, I don't aspire to that philosophy. But it's it's not just on his physical ability, because there are so many great, incredible, like, so skilled we can't even really comprehend what they're doing, level guitar players out there that aren't changing music whatsoever. Yep. And so to judge whether someone's the greatest by that, by pure skill alone, I think doesn't answer the question adequately enough. And so to see how Hendrix changed everything, and that's why, you know, I discussed it so much in our Van Halen episode. It's the the ones that are truly great, yes, have the skill, they're also the ones that completely change the instrument. There's a before and after date of when their album dropped. And, you know, the thing that's so incredible about Jimi Hendrix is that that first record, there wasn't a period where you listen to and just go, man, he's really good, but, you know, he's barely starting to scratch his potential as as a player. Like, he was fully formed at that point. You listen to a lot of the other songs on that album, he's doing stuff that, like, you know, it would take guitars 20 years to come up with. And there's really such a select few number of times where the jump is so drastic, where you have the greatest guitar players in the world saying that he's completely created a brand new style of playing and I think in that aspect that's how you determine who the greatest of all time is about what impact did they leave on their instrument and I think that no one has left a bigger impact than Jimi Hendrix has and so now I feel at peace that I understand the answer to this question. And that was a very satisfying thing for me to do in researching this episode. And of course, this is probably one of the biggest instances of me not being a fan before and being a very big fan afterward in such a short amount of time. So that was really fun to do. Yeah, that doesn't happen often, considering we do bands that you're already familiar with for the most part. Yeah, that's that's going to be the, the really fun part of doing episodes that the fans suggest. So thank you guys for telling us to do a Jimi Hendrix episode. It probably would have been a lot longer before we would have done one. Mm-hmm. So um, 
please continue to send your requests. We promise that we are listening and we are going to get to them. May not be super, super fast, but um, except for that, we very Huey, much appreciate. Except for that, Huey Lewis in the news. <laughs> oh yeah, that that might come sooner rather than later. Uh, thank you guys so much for all of your support for listening all the way through this episode. Uh, our episodes have been getting longer, but I think that uh, they've been getting more fun as well. So hopefully you guys are continuing to enjoy and make sure that you hit the subscribe button. We've got new episodes every Monday morning, 9 a.m. Central. And we are going to be taking a very uh, big jump backwards in time with our next artist and we're going to be delving into completely new territory oh yeah and i'm really excited to see how this turns out because this will be a prelude to some of the stuff we're going to talk about in our history of music we're going to be going all the way back to uh the classical era and talking about our first composer on the podcast so Make sure you guys tune in for that next week. And check us out on Facebook and uh, Instagram. We've got all kinds of cool stuff going on there. And uh, I believe that's it. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan. Keep on listening to good music.